Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 55 of X-Lapsed, where we're, uh, well, we're fixing my goof up here. We're doing two issues of X-Force in a row. This is the second of those two, and it is X-Force, volume 6, number 7. This had an April 2020 cover date. The story is called Domino Has Fallen, and it uh, features Domino being almost toppled over by literal dominoes, and, uh, Tell you what, when I saw this cover, I thought it was a cool cover, but I uh, didn't really want to know what happened inside because Domino just isn't isn't one of my favorites. Uh, and we'll talk more about that as we go along here. Uh, this one's written by Benjamin Percy with art by Oscar Bazaldois. Bazaldois. I might have said that right the first time by accident. Uh, colors, Guru EFX. Letters, uh, VCs, Joe Caramagna, designs Tom Muller, head of X, Hickman, edits Robinson White Sobolski, cover price $3.99, went on sale February 12th, 2020. Now we open and we're off the coast of Italy, and we see a mutant ally out on the water jetting by on his speedboat. Suddenly, he's shot dead right between the eyes. Now the narration suggests that this is a literally impossible shot. From here we go to Toronto, Ontario, where a man who has written several pro-mutant articles is hit by another magic bullet. Now this thing started off across the street, went through a window, went through a guy delivering him a pizza, went through the pizza, then finally went through the heart of its target. Next stop, Tokyo, Japan. Now a very convenient series of events unfolds here involving a child losing a balloon and chasing it into the street causing a car carrying a Krakoan advocate to stop in the perfect spot right above a manhole. Now, from the down below, a shot is fired, and this shot goes right through the target's head. Now, if you're familiar with the X-Men, and I'm assuming you are, and you hadn't been following along with this first handful of Dawn of X issues, you'd probably assume that all of these lucky breaks belonged to Domino. And, well, you'd be right and wrong, and we're about to find out all about that. Next stop, we go to Krakoa, and Sage is reporting all of this to Domino, who reveals that ever since she was abducted and skinned by Zeno, she'd lost her luck. She uh, says every time she rolls the dice, it used to come up sevens, now they come up snake eyes. Now, that all begs the question, if she no longer has her luck, where in the hell did it go? Yeah, let's do a roll call here. It's a short one, but uh, it's one that'll still lead up an entire page anyway. Our, uh, our cast is Sage, Domino, and Colossus. And then we get two pages of credits. From here, an info page. It's all from Beast's logbook. And Beast basically spends the page talking about how Forge is acting like a frat boy chucklehead. So uh, I guess his out-of-character representational is intentional then? If I'm reading this right, anyway. 
I mean, if that's the case, good to know because, wow, Forge kind of sucks uh, in this in this uh, in this characterization. Oh, and also, they're working on some spyware uh, in the form of a sound-absorbing singing stone, which sounds like something out of Ocarina of Time, so that they can keep up to date on what's going on at all levels of government and all of the superheroes. You know, they're going to try to get this in the Avengers uh, computer or tower or mountain or wherever the hell they're living nowadays. And also, you know, into the White House, into everywhere that uh, the power lies, right? From here, we jump back to comics. Domino is still thinking back to her time in a Xeno canister, and it's been keeping her up nights. And so, she just goes out for a midnight run. Now, she reaches the beach and runs into Colossus, who is there painting, because that's all Colossus ever seems to do. Now, we haven't seen Colossus. We haven't seen much of Colossus here. Uh, he did make an odd cameo in the Fantastic Four miniseries, but... Uh, in the Dawn of X-Books proper, I think we've only seen him the one time where he was in, uh, like, the hull of, uh, of one of Kitty's boats. Now, together, Domino and Colossus have a fairly touching scene, and they compare notes about their recent trauma. Now, Colossus had something pretty heavy go down in Russia, where he saved a bunch of refugees, but also saw a lot of horrifying things. Now, we haven't gotten a full explanation of this, but it was touched on back in the first issue of this X-Force series. Again, he came back on Kitty's boat, and uh, those were those refugees that the healer couldn't heal because they were hurting everywhere. Now, they have a pretty telling conversation here, um, how they were both told that what they had to go through was worth it for Krakoa. How it's said, uh, almost dismissively, as in, all their troubles already happened, so they're not even worth discussing anymore. And, I mean, at the end of the day, it was all for the, quote, greater good. This is interesting. Uh, I hadn't really considered like the collectivist undertones, but uh, or I mean, maybe they're even overtones <laughs> to Krakoa. And uh, while yeah, while it's clear they're prioritizing the needs of the group over that of the individual, I hadn't really stopped to think about it. And uh, in my not thinking about it, I didn't think any of the characters thought about it either. So this is pretty good stuff, and we'll talk more about this later on. But I, I really, I really dig this. Next stop, another info page. It's more from the Beast. He says that he'd found a piece of paper left for him with scorched edges, and it had a single word on it written, I believe, in Cyrillic. I think that might be the language, or the, or the alphabet. I don't even know. I tried using several online translators for this, but I'm not even sure I'm, right, I'm using the right alphabet. Uh, the closest I could come to actually forming a word is loyalty, though I'm probably wrong. Back to comics, and it's time for another lucky assassination. Now, this time it's a priest of the Order of X. This is an organization that worships mutants. Now, Domino asks Sage to try to use mathematics to figure out the next pro-mutant target. And they deduce that the next hit might be one Professor Elise Irene Owsley. She is a staunch defender of mutant rights, and she's scheduled to deliver a speech at the Sierra Institute in Tahoe. Sure enough, she is the next target. Thankfully, however, Domino is there to tackle her out of the literal line of fire. Then, we get a chase scene here. So we have our assassin shooting into this uh, institute from outside. He's there on a, you know, a snowy hill that is Tahoe, after all, or snowy mountain, I guess. And our assassin is on a pair of skis, and you know, seeing that the jig is up, starts swooshing on down the mountain. Domino leaps out of the Institute, swipes some fella's snowboard, and proceeds to follow. 
and we get four pages of high-octane downhill chase, with Domino finally managing to get a lucky shot in when she blasts the barrel off the assassin's gun. Now, the chase ends at the foot of the mountain, where we find ourselves at a casino. Inside are, you know, casino things, you know, um, slot machines, gamblers, chips, cards, dice, you know, casino things. Uh, It probably smells like, you know, 20-year-old cigarettes and old nacho cheese sauce. We focus on an, an older lady who'd been wrestling with the slots all day, just waiting for the damn thing to pay off. Then, someone places their hand over hers while she pushes that big, shiny red button on the machine. Bada-bing, bada-boom, it comes up all sevens, and the old biddy wins the jackpot. Now we close out by seeing that this uh, good luck charm, this good Samaritan, is Domino, only not. Now, you know how Domino is white-skinned with a black circle around her eye? Well, this Domino is black-skinned with a white circle around her eye, so like an inverted Domino... Doppelganger, I suppose, and uh, that is where we leave it. Next episode, we will finally wrap up the Dawn of X Wave 1 number 6s with X-Men number 6. I'm not even sure I can remember them all. <laughs> I started to write out rankings here. I might actually have to to check out my notes again to uh, to see what I thought of some of these, because it's been, it's been a little while since I read some of these, so stay tuned for that. But let's talk about this issue, and, uh, you know, it's... Wow, I, I can't believe we've got two issues of X-Force in a row that I really, really liked. That's a, quite a quite a shock. I wasn't expecting to like either of them, and uh, I really enjoyed them both. Um, I'm really not used to enjoying stories that feature Domino as a point-of-view character, and I'm sure I've said this before. Uh, the thing with Domino is I feel like she only has like the same story. One story that's told over and over again. She infiltrates someplace, she gets captured, she escapes, and she ultimately wins. That's literally every Domino story. Now here, while we're on a similar trajectory, there's something about this story that feels a little bit fresher. Though, given the cliffhanger, I have a sneaking suspicion that the freshness might be sort of kind of short-lived. But we won't talk about that today. Let's, let's enjoy what we have today, and we'll worry about that another day. I, I do like the idea that in taking Domino's skin, the uh, Xeno geeks were also somehow able to take her powers, not so much for the Domino-specific powers or anything, but for what this could potentially mean moving forward. Xeno, like many of the Dawn of X villains at this point, are pretty generic and weak, though if they're able to grow like these dark mirror versions of the good guys, that could up the stakes a, up the stakes a little bit. Or at least make the books a little bit more interesting than, you know, just a monthly X-Men versus interchangeable mercenaries or dudes in suits sort of series. I mean, it's something, right? (laughs) So that's all well and good, right? But for me, where this issue really shined was in the very brief scene between Domino and Colossus. Now, sure. We still don't have all the information about the atrocities that uh, Piotr saw. How do you say that? Is it Piotr? Piotr? Peter. (laughs) Colossus. I'll just call his ass Colossus. All the atrocities Colossus saw and lived through in Russia, but that's not really the point here, that we don't know that just yet. The point is, and uh, I think this is the first time we're actually seeing a little bit of this, it's sort of kind of dissent from some prominent Krakoans. Domino and Colossus saying, sort of dismissively and under their breath, for Krakoa, 
was very telling, at least for me. It's like they're actually afraid to dissent, right? Uh, but there's this this hesitation from which I infer that they might not be completely on board. The way I look at it, they might they might feel less valued as individuals and more just as like spokes in the wheel, you know, just a little cog in the machine to move Krakoa forward. Especially considering what they'd both gone through, it's not hard to see why they might feel this way. And I mean, this is something that we could probably talk about till we're blue in the face, right? Is this another byproduct of the resurrection protocol? Uh, I mean, another thing that reframes what we consider as stakes in the post-Hoxpox world here. It begs questions like, are our mutants less valued? Do their lives matter so little simply because they are now sort of products of Krakoa? Products as in they can be replaced quickly and easily, as we've seen. Does that make it so that their suffering matters less? Does it mean that they're valued less? Does this mean that Xavier no longer really prioritizes preservation of their individual lives? You know, uh, these to me are very fascinating questions and are ideas that I'm really hoping that we get to explore moving forward. I think the next issue of X-Force actually features Colossus and Domino on the cover, so perhaps we'll get a little bit better of a grasp on their thoughts and feelings there. Just like with our last issue here, this, is, this isn't quite a one-and-done, but it's sort of, uh, I don't know, it feels like it's existing on its own, and that's a good thing. I really enjoyed the art here. I thought it was, I thought it was solid art. It was lighter. It was brighter. Um, again, it wasn't like the, uh, you know, the submarine with the lights turned out. So I like that. And uh, overall, very, very strong. Very strong in that it, um, it made me think. You know, uh, it made me actually consider just what it means to be. A Krakoan in this uh, post-Hoxpox resurrection protocol sort of setting. And uh, I'm hoping we see more of this. I'm hoping that this gets explored, because that's been one of my problems here. Like, I've talked about it when Quentin Quire got his head cut off, and they were just, like, joking about it. It's like, ah, well, he'll be back to bother us soon enough. It's like, but a dude died, you know? And we saw in the Fantastic Four miniseries where Wolverine gutted that that mutant uh, in the Doombot armor. It's like you still killed a man, you know, and it was just shrugged off. So I'm hoping that that's on purpose, you know. I'm hoping that we are that we are downplaying what it means to die, so it can mean more when they discuss what it actually means to die. I, I don't know if that makes any sense. I hope it does. But uh, all that to say, loved this. Thought the uh, thought that this scene, this thought provoking scene was worth the price of admission all on its own, and I'm really looking forward to more just like it. But uh, that's where we'll leave X-Force number 7. Let's do some mailbag before we go. We're going to start with Damien, discussing Marauders number 7. He says, I still love Marauders. It was so clever to delay the others knowing about Kitty. And of course, Kitty was a... We saw her drown in Marauders number 6. Of course, it, could ta- it would take a while to miss her. And they're all used to her going AWOL for a while. And yeah, absolutely, this was perfectly done, and it made a ton of sense. Uh, I love that Marauders is actually using the parameters that have been set, as it pertains to Kitty, to, like, the best possible use of them here. I mean, we know Kitty can't fast travel. 
and she's usually away for long stretches at a time. We also know that she wasn't even on her own ship, which makes it so the rest of her team couldn't just fast travel to her. So it's very well done playing the ball where it lies and using that to the advantage here because it totally makes sense that they wouldn't know. They wouldn't worry just yet. I mean, Bishop was a little worried that she didn't beat him there, but, I mean, she does slip away. And she is beholden to, you know, the chops of the water, right? I mean, she could have gotten stuck in a storm. She could have gotten stuck. She could have gone off, you know, off trail, off trajectory. You just don't know, especially when you're dealing with a place in the middle of the Bermuda Triangle, right? I mean, that's kind of its gimmick. Uh, Back to Damien. I love the characterization of of Callisto. The bit where she ripped the sleeves off reminded me of a scene from Savage She-Hulk number 21 from way back in 1981, where She-Hulk does the very same thing. I'm sure it's a complete coincidence, but I can't help seeing the parallel. And I could definitely see that. I I don't remember that scene off the top of my head, but it definitely feels like something that She-Hulk would do, and uh, might have done a few times since then as well. So yeah, I could could definitely see that. And, uh, you know, with Marauders, you just can't say whether or not it's a uh, callback or not, because they're really good at that. (laughs) They're really good at the callbacks. So that might have been something there, too, uh, uh, to evoke that sort of uh, a comparison. Uh, Damien continues, I'm so glad to hear you're, you're getting a positive representation of your home. The extra information about your area that you gave gives texture to the idea of the Morlocks moving in. Surely they could do stories about lots of golfing pensioners having to cope with Morlocks. And uh, this was, of course, uh, Rio Verde, Arizona, where the uh, Morlocks are uh, chilling, you know, while Callista does her thing. And I talked about uh, having to do a lot of jobs out there for the uh, for the golfing pensioners. Yes, uh, and uh, it's a very rare thing to see like the Phoenix area represented correctly because it's usually barren desert. You know, I think uh, they did an okayish job in the Will Payton Starman series back in the '80s for DC. Beside the fact that like Will's house looked like it was backed up against like a densely wooded and lush forest, which no, we don't have those. <laughs> <laughs> Not in the valley, anyway. I mean, there are parts of Arizona that are very, very densely wooded, but uh, not really in a, in the downtown Phoenix area. So they tried. Uh, Damien wraps up with, uh, anyway, I'm still loving your work, and uh, thank you, thank you so much. I'm still I'm still loving hearing from you. So thank you for for everything. Uh, next up, we have Al Sedano, who's talking about Marauders Number One. He says. Sorry, it's been a, it's been several days, but it's been a busy week. Anyway, let's get on to Marauders number one. First of all, I do like that it looks like they are keeping up giving us a cast for each issue. I hope that keeps up past the issue ones. And yeah, we uh, we do continue to see the roll calls, which to me is, I don't know, kind of a good and bad thing. I mean, of course, it's good to know who we're reading about. Um, but to me, and this might be weird, but it gives... Each team roster, like, maybe a little bit too much in the way of fluidity. You know, like, uh, when you looked at... Well, when you when you eventually get to, uh, like, New Mutants here, it's like... Like, Boom Boom will be on in the roster for some, but not in others. And it's like, well, is she part of the team or is she not part of the team? It's... I don't know. It feels like they change from month to month. Where I'd rather... I mean, I, I come out of the of the early 90s fandom here where it's like you had your set team and that was your set team. And it's uh, and anything else was just like bonus stuff. So I don't know. It feels a little fluid for me, but I don't know. That might just be me thinking too hard. 
I also have a problem with the fact that they take up an entire page. I mean, today's issue, we had three people in it, and it got a whole page. Uh, we've had issues of of other Dawn of X books, and like the X-Men Fantastic Four ones that had like a dozen or more people on it. And I could see that taking up a page, but three, we could have we popped this into the double-page spread of credits. Because, of course, we had to get two pages of credits immediately following it. Al continues, uh, Okay, why did Kitty have to steal a boat to get there? I mean, did Kurt and Aurora just ditch her in Central Park and wish her luck? No one made arrangements for her? However, I did laugh at Logan's shopping list. And yeah, that, you know, I didn't even think about that when I was reading it. It's a yeah, kind of a jerk move. It's like, well, we're going to take the shortcut. You get there when you get there, and uh, you, you're responsible for your own transport. So, uh... Hope to see you soon. That's that is kind of funny. Uh, Al continues. It was nice to see Bishop back as a good guy and doing an investigation. Uh, he's made to be the mutant cop, and uh, that actually reminds me of some series that I haven't thought of in forever. Uh, a couple of series that like focused on Bishop being a, a police officer. Um, District X, and uh, I believe that turned into Mutopia X post uh, Decimation, where uh, you know the the no more mutants garbage and i remember those series being a pretty pleasant surprise um i I remember them getting i think i remember them getting compared to gotham central um at least in uh if not in story in tone i guess but i remember those were pretty fun um and i i also agree that this is a real good portrayal for bishop i remember um during during the new x-men the morrison run they called him and Sage in to do uh, to do like to do an investigation after Emma Frost was shot, and I thought that was a fun bit of synergy, and really uh, enjoyed them, you know, playing back into Bishop's past and uh, into what his you know specialties are. So that's really cool. Uh, Al continues the, the sinister secrets. I'm assuming that the Hellfire alumnus that was not invited was Donald Pierce. And yes, we, uh, I believe we know that now. Um, after uh, Marauders number six, we do finally see Donald Pierce. And it's a, it's not a good reunion, so <laughs> I'll leave it at that. Uh, Al wraps up with, overall, I really enjoyed this one, and I'm looking forward to issue two. And yeah, this is, I, I mean, I, I can't say enough good things about uh, Marauders. Uh, it was... Definitely a dark horse book for me, uh, a book that I mentioned here several times before. I wasn't even going to pick it up. Uh, I was just going to pick up the the main X-Men book. And then when I saw like Excalibur was something and it's like X-Force was something new. It's like these are like the legacy books, you know, the books that I've been collecting for most of my life. So it's like, ah, I can't, there can't be an Excalibur book out there and I can't and I'm not buying it. Right. But then, you know, you see something like Marauders on there, and you figure, eh, I'll take a chance, you know, I'll take a shot. And turned out to be, you know, the surprise hit of this Dawn of X run. Uh, definitely a, a wonderful surprise. But uh, thank you for uh, sharing your thoughts, Al. I, I do have your thoughts on, I believe, Excalibur number one sitting in the mailbox here, and we will uh, we'll discuss that one uh, next episode. But uh, thank you. We're going to wrap up with uh, one from uh, our friend Green Lantern HG, and he's talking about episode 50. Now he says, Chris, my friend, I caught up to episode 50 of X-Lapsed. I've been having trouble listening because of work. They're piling up on me. I just want to thank you for keeping up with this. I've missed a lot from X-Men. Some I'm glad, others, well, not so much. 
Well, thank you. Uh, thank you, GL, uh, for uh, writing in and uh, and for keeping up. It really means a lot because, you know, I've talked about this a time or two before. I feel like I'm being very greedy <laughs> by, uh, by forcing myself onto your devices as often as I have been of late. And uh, I know that time, I, I respect everybody's time. I, re- I respect everybody's decision making and their priorities and stuff like that. So it's like, I know that things pile up. I am a perfect example of letting things pile up. Hence, I mean, this very show <laughs> comes out of me letting things pile up. So uh, I guess sometimes good things happen that way. But uh, no, I, I definitely understand and appreciate you uh, sticking around. It really means a lot to me um, that you are uh, that you're following along and that you're you're enjoying and uh, and that you you know you listened to episode fifty because episode fifty was a special one. So thank you so much for uh, for sharing and writing in and. Uh, and for being part of this, this you know, weird little journey that we're on, uh, navigating our way through the, the current year X-Books. So, if anybody else would like to uh, write in and talk to me about current year X-Books or anything, anything in general, uh, you could do so very easily. You could find me on Twitter at Ace Comics or email me at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find show notes and blog posts and all sorts of stuff over at chrisisoninfiniteearth.com. If you're just interested in X-Lapsed, there is xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com where you can listen to these shows in the, you know, the order they're supposed to be listened to. It's it's easy way to find them. Um, the Podbean feed is uh, well, it's very deep now, so it's kind of hard to find things. I, I would assume I, I don't really try to find things on my own feed because I've heard it all already. So uh, maybe someone can let me know how easy it is to navigate. I, I remember trying to navigate it a while ago, but. Uh, yeah, that's a story for another day. <laughs> there were some there were some wrinkles in there that uh, that I had to fix, but uh, we'll talk about that another time. Um, the Facebook group is '90s X Men, uh, and also the audio archives is ChrisandReggie.Podbean.com. Just want to thank everyone once again for hanging out and sharing your time. It really, really means a lot to me. And until next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya.
Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 61 of X-Lapsed, where uh, we're going to be talking about a book that I've really turned the corner on here in uh, X-Force. I remember uh, dreading X-Force Day in the early issues, but uh, here we are, eight issues in, and uh, I'm really finding myself looking forward to uh, seeing where the story goes. So, without any further ado, let's hop right on in, because uh, we got uh, we got a bunch of stuff to talk about. Now, this is X-Force Volume 6, Number 8, at an April 2020 cover date. The story's called Game of Dominoes, written by Benjamin Percy, with art by Basil Dois. Doesn't have a first name this time around. Colors by Guru EFX, letters VCs Joe Caramagna. Designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits Robinson White Sobolski. Cover price $3.99. Went on sale February 26th of 2020. Now we open in London, where the inverted domino is holding a pro-mutant advocate in a hotel room. Though maybe holding isn't exactly the right word for it. Uh, it's pretty clear that there's some hanky-panky afoot, uh... And uh, the inverted domino, I guess we can call her Anamod, uh, has taken a break from uh, the banging to hit the showers. And also to procure, like, a bio garrot the, in the form of her ear. If you remember, these Xenos or Xenos or whatever, they're like weaponized humans, right? Their bodies are weapons. So, you know, you tug on the ear and a garrot comes out and you can strangle a dude, I guess. It's a, we've seen this before. So, post-shower, Anamad is going to kill this, I'm assuming, British minister. And boy, is she surprised to be confronted by the real deal Domino in this very hotel room who already has her pistol drawn and primed to go. From here, we get a page or two of tough talk and fighting. A domino takes a lamp to the side of the head, which she responds to by, well, blowing Anamad's brains out. She actually shoots her right through the right eye, so now they match. You know, our Domino has a very, very scarred right side, and now so does Anamad. Let's do a roll call. It's a short one. Uh, it still takes an entire page, but it's a short one. It's Domino, Sage, and Colossus, and then, of course, two page of credits. Then, back to comics, and we are at the Healing Gardens. Now, Sage is examining the Anamad corpse, where she suggests that... Rather than just using domino skin grafts, like we've seen before from the Xeno folk, that this specimen, the Xenos actually went so far as to weave Domino's actual DNA into her. Now, Sage refers to this as a case of putting all your eggs into one basket and suggests that this is a bet that Xeno lost. Remember, they were just at a casino for a little bit, so we gotta get referential and punny. So Sage wonders how many more Anamods might be lurking out there, to which Domino suggests... She doesn't think there's all that many. You see, no sooner did this one die than Domino was able to find a four-leaf clover. Yes, really. Now, she takes this to mean that her missing luck is starting to come back. And, uh, you know, I guess it's as good a sign as any, and it also does facilitate an upcoming scene and uh, an entire second half of this issue, so I'll give him a thumbs up on that. Now, later on, we get another rendezvous with Domino and Colossus, and it's another thought-provoker. It's uh, another one that gives us plenty of food for thought. Um, they embrace, you know, uh, they've, been, they've both been through so much. They've both, uh, they're both haunted uh, by what, it, what they've seen and what they've experienced that, you know, to the point where sleep just doesn't come anymore. You know, they can't, they can't find the peace enough to sleep. Now, here is where Colossus makes a suggestion. 
Now that suggestion is that perhaps together they consider another kind of sleep. And uh, this is not a reference to hanky-panky of any sort. This is Colossus saying they can hold each other and just go for a swim. And then Peter will transform into his metallic form and they will just sink to the bottom. I think this is the first time we're looking at something like suicide here, and uh, it's a toughie, isn't it? Um, I mean, it's it's heartbreaking, but considering the landscape here in the Dawn of X books, at the same time, it's quite a, it's easy for me to say. At the same time, it's kind of not. You know, it's it's weird. Um, now, Colossus's suggestion doesn't exactly come from a place of seeking final release. It's more like they'll die, knowing that they'll be reborn via the resurrection protocols. However, maybe their returns can be mentally and emotionally rolled back to before their recent experiences. Like kind of like if you're if you're rolling back your operating system, right? You know. And about that, I I don't know. <laughs> I I feel weird about this because I mean, we get plenty of food for thought here, right? It also, at the same time, sort of kind of does a disservice to those in the real world who struggle with these kind of thoughts and internal conflicts. Let's put a pin in that, and we'll talk about it more later. So, Colossus suggests that they go for that final for now swim. Domino, she's listening, but she's not digging it. because Not because she's like scared of death or anything. It's just that all of these experiences, all of the bad things... She wants to remember it all. You know, she doesn't like this idea of coming back fresh and clean and, uh, I guess, undisturbed uh, because these experiences are a part of her. It's more, more interesting food for thought. But before we go any further, the conversation that they're having is interrupted by a call from Sage. Now, she's found something interesting in St. Petersburg. Some dude made his way past the Russian gateway gods and managed to touch a Krakoan gate. Now, this fella had some domino skin grafted onto his hand. Domino doesn't understand how or why Sage would be able to narrow her search quite this much and be this precise. And here is where the four-leaf clover comes back into it. Now, Sage reveals that she simply scanned for four-leaf clovers and uh, found a massive proliferation of them in Russia. To be more specific, it's all along the Trans-Siberian train tracks, which is one of my very favorite Christmas bands, uh, you know, right after a Mannheim Steamroller. From here, info page. It's all about setting up social venues in order to encourage that third Krakoan bylaw of Make More Mutants. And it's a cute page. I, I don't have any complaints here. Um, we learn that Black Tom has already set up a sort of swinging scene on Krakoa called the, Blue, the Green Lagoon. Now, where the uh, mutant elites go to eat and meet and bang, or something. We go back to comics, and Domino and Colossus zip over to the Trans-Siberian tracks. Now, Colossus has a lot of second thoughts about this, but ultimately, and obviously, he agrees to go along. From here, we get some uh, some action. We get train jumping. You know, they, they jump from one train to another so they can get on the right one. And we learn here that this is the first time that Colossus has left Krakoa since he arrived on Kitty's boat way back in X-Force number one. This is in contrast with Domino, who has been, like, constantly on the move since her rescue in X-Force number two. So she's been bebopping all over the place, 
Peter's been, you know, just just happy as a clam sitting at home painting and uh, occasionally finding the Fantastic Four in a spinoff that nobody's going to mention. Now, they bust into the right train, and they find this car to be like a mobile body shop. It's just like the Korean printing press that Wolverine and Kid Omega infiltrated, only it's on a train. So we've got canisters of domino body parts and whatnot, and also, it's worth noting, a bunch of domino-spliced bad guys to fight. Now, the big plan here is that Colossus is going to exit, run across the top of the train, all the way to the front, and then he's going to physically stop the train, like actually get in front of it and make it stop moving. All the while, Domino's going to be fighting off her skin spawns, which is a far more disgusting term than I intended for it to be. And, well, that's exactly what happens. And it's successful. So all the Xenomos die, and that's the good news. But also Domino dies, and that's the not-so-good news. So Peter holds Nina as she passes on. She makes him promise to make sure that, when she's resurrected, that she keeps all of her memories. Colossus agrees, though I'm not sure he has all that much control over what data is in Cerebro. What are you going to do? I suppose it's the thought that counts. Give her her peace. There you go. Uh, Now, if the covered X-Force number 9 is any indication, Domino is not going to be on long, so we'll see her again real soon. From here, an info page, and Beast is talking about the man with the peacock tattoo and uh, compares his organization's goals with those of Orcus. Basically, the concept of forced evolution and creating something akin to the post-human. It's all fair enough, and it serves to transition to to our closing scene for the issue, which just so happens to be back at that Xeno meeting hall. So our lead Xeno guy, I'm assuming he's got a peacock tattoo somewhere on his body, he reports to his followers that the lab has been destroyed. Now a shadowy individual in the crowd, it's like, it looks kind of like uh, like what you'd see on C-SPAN. You know, you have the, uh, I, I don't know if it's the House or the Senate, but you have like the sort of semicircle of seats that ascend up. And we have one guy, shadowy, we don't see him, and he's in the crowd and he just sort of begins to heckle the leader here, the the dude with the peacock tattoo. He's asking how much this is going to cost them and whatnot. He's like, hey, I invested. I want to return on my investment. The conversation gets heated, and uh, to the point where the Xeno leader, he goes to send his heavy to go pluck the dissenter out of the crowd. Only, our shadowy individual turns out to be far more formidable a presence than anyone could have planned for. So the Xeno guy's heavy goes flying as our shadowy visitor says he's going he's gonna to start laying down some law here, and he suggests it's time for Xeno to just declare war. And uh, that is where we leave X-Force number 8. Next episode, we will be wrapping up the Dawn of X Wave 1 number 7s with X-Men. But first, let's, let's do some talking, right? Um, this is a good issue. I liked it a lot. And it is really weird how X-Force is, is like really coming into its own here. Um, I didn't think that I'd be enjoying this quite as much as I am when we started this, uh, this run. Now, there's clearly one scene in this issue that gives us the most to chew on, right? So how about we start with that one, eh? Colossus suggests suicide. Now, that is not out of character for him. If you remember, he has taken his own life before, though it was in service of the greater good. This wasn't that. Back when he sacrificed his life to cure the legacy virus, that could be seen as a selfless act. It might have been 
persuaded by guilt. But at the end of the day, it was selfless. He died so others would not have to. In this situation, it's more of a self-serving endeavor, right? Um, Dying simply to forget, to remove inconvenient memories and experiences. I mean, I'm not here to judge. We all have our reasons, we all have our beliefs, and it's not my place to evaluate or opine on them. I mean, their entire philosophy is predicated on the concept of removing the bad and keeping the good as it pertains to experiences and trains of thought and emotion. So yeah, I'm not here to judge. Colossus here, he wants a release. He wants peace. That's human. And perhaps it's the most human use of the resurrection protocols to date. I mean, I, I, I hate to play the real-world game where we try to fit these fantastical concepts and notions into our own mundane world, but if near-instant resurrection was a possibility, without things like faith and mortal sin getting in the way, this is the sort of situation I could see happening. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about faith in just a little bit. But to, to continue with, the, with our real-world game, right? I mean, there are things like rebirthings, uh, sometimes with a physical emergence ceremony. Also, things like being born again into faiths. Um, It's a headier and far heavier concept than I have any right or uh, uh, credential to delve into. So, I mean, quick and dirty on it, I'm just trying to say that this sort of train of thought isn't without precedent. We also have some deep discussions uh, in the real world regarding things like the right to die with with dignity. And while this isn't exactly that, it's actually not that at all, it might be worth mentioning just for the sake of conversation. You know, and again, this is another thing that I don't have any kind of credibility or any kind of first, second, or third-hand experience with, so uh, just it's food for thought. Now, last issue. Pop back to last issue. I talked about one scene that I really appreciated, and it was that scene between Colossus and Domino. And I commented that they were sort of being portrayed as passive dissonance to the created to, to the Krakoan way of life. Uh, whereas it seems as though most of the mutants have accepted this new normal, and they allow themselves to get caught up, they get lost in the constant parties and the revelry of this island. They're also perhaps losing their own individuality in the process. And we talked about that uh, during X-Force number uh, 7, where it's it's more about the many than the few. The, The individual isn't as important as the overarching goal of what is Krakoa, you know? Now, Domino and Colossus, during that conversation, they sort of dismiss that notion of everything serving the greater good of Krakoa. Like, they say under their breath, like, uh, for Krakoa, you know, it's it's very, very passive, um, but at the same time, it's, it's, it's honest. Now, one of the theories that we've been batting around ever since the start of this project is that of Krakoa or the Professor or perhaps a combination of the two manipulating the mutants into behaving the way that they are. Now, I want to make it clear, there has not been a single shred of evidence to that, It's just a prevailing theory, at least in our little X-lapsed corner of the fandom. Now, moving with that theory, these Peter and Nina scenes almost fly directly in the face of that theory, right? 
I mean, I, I don't really have a point here other than to say that this freedom of thought that we're seeing here is is kind of odd and almost in contrast with so much of the Krakoan new normal. Um, now, from the, the heavy concept of suicide to the perhaps heavier or spicier concept of religion as it pertains to suicide, I mentioned the fact that many theologies view suicide as a mortal sin, right? A sin that you cannot, you, you can't repent, you can't be forgiven for that before you pass on. Now we've got resurrection protocols in place, so things are quite a bit different. That said, we know that there are mutants of faith. Nightcrawler is probably the one that everybody popped into everybody's mind, right? He is still very much a practicing Catholic. In fact, Mystique mocked him for it as recently as the first meeting of the Quiet Council back in Hoxpox. Question, where do you think a Nightcrawler would fall on this idea? Heck, where do you think many readers might fall on this idea? Um, would we and or he be able to reconcile it simply because we care so much about Colossus and Domino? Or would we hold to our beliefs and maybe, I don't know, start looking at them differently? I mean, and this is a deep subject. Certainly far deeper than I have any right or any sort of, uh, I'm trying to think of legitimacy? I don't know. Uh, any right discussing here on an X-Men podcast, but still, I want it out there. It is interesting food for thought. I do look forward to hearing your thoughts on the subject, should you actually have any you're willing to share, because this is a this is an interesting new spin on the resurrection protocols. It's I feel like I, I went into this project really trepidatious about how I was gonna feel about these protocols. And uh, every time I think we've seen everything, something new comes across the uh, the table. You know, there are things that I thought this was going to be very cut and dry and very um, inhuman, you know, whereas this is maybe a, like a little too human to where it, it has the ability to get under your skin and make you think and make you question things. So I like it. And, uh, I, and if anybody would like to add to that, definitely, definitely feel free. I would appreciate it very much. So what else happened to this issue? Uh, we, we found out about four-leaf clovers, and uh, it was clever. It was clever. I mean, it felt a little bit out of nowhere, but I did appreciate the way it developed, and how it helped push the story onward. It was good. Um, I usually can't stand Sage. I usually... I find her to be, for the most part, wildly unpleasant and almost stupidly dismissive of her fellow mutants. But I actually liked her discourse with Domino here. Um, they felt like they were equals, and that was cool. Uh, Domino killing the uh, Anamad in the London Hotel. It worked, uh, and it served the story. Uh, gotta say, I'm actually pleased that she was taken out quite this soon. I was afraid we were in for like two or three issues of Domino almost literally chasing her shadow. So, uh... Well done. I, I mean, that, that didn't need to overstay its welcome, and thankfully it did not. Uh, the train scene, maybe a hair too easy, uh, but the scene was more a backdrop for Domino's death than anything else, so I suppose we may as well allow it. Uh, question, though. I 
I'm wondering, is this the first time Domino's ever died? If so, a little underwhelming, isn't it? You know, she's been through a lot, and uh, she dies being slammed against the wall of a train? I don't know. Uh, Speaking of Domino dying, she wanted to keep all of her memories and experiences intact post-resurrection. I like that. Uh, I don't know if that'll include her body scarring. Though, again, if the cover to X-Force number 9 is anything to go by, it would appear that it will not. Um, She's back to being whole on the cover, which I suppose places Wolverine number 1 as occurring after this story. I mean, who knows? It's not like these books have editors, right? Uh, The ending scene was fine. I had no real problems with it. Um, It sets the stage for Xeno tensions to start bubbling over, which... I mean, let's be honest, there's been eight issues. I would appreciate it if this conflict would eventually come to a head and hopefully get out of our way, because it's been there for the whole time so far. Overall, though, yet another damn fine issue of X-Force. The art was great. The pretension, even given the heavy subject of, uh, of suicide here, the pretension was kept to a minimum. I really can't think of any complaints. Um, so, if anybody's listening and has the ability to go back in time, more like this, please. I'd like to see more more stories like this. This, is, this wasn't... We talked a couple of episodes ago, or a couple of X-Forces ago, I should say, about... What people, what creators picture when they're given the task of creating an X-Force story. And I think that for the most part, and this is me projecting 100%, when people think X-Force, they think extreme violence, gore, uh, bordering on like a mature rated book. Here we didn't get any of that. Uh, We did get mature content in like a legitimate way. You know, it wasn't just people saying the F word. This is actually deep, thoughtful um, bits of writing. And uh, I dug it. I dug it a lot. Um, Before we go, let's dip into the mailbag here, where uh, we're actually going to start with Damien, who's discussing the previous issue of X-Force, X-Force number seven. Now, he says, I almost wrote that this was a fun issue, but that would be a lie. It was a good issue, but there was very little fun. That's 100% right. That's 100% right. Uh, Damien continues, The standout scene of this issue was Domino meeting Colossus on the beach. My understanding is that they had a romantic relationship in some comics I haven't read, but I thought the way their encounter was staged showed genuine care between them. It's interesting that Domino remains scarred. I would imagine the Morlock healer would be able to fix that damage. I wonder if they intend us to think she wants a reminder of what she went through. I'm thinking of the five years later Legion... Uh, and Vi shrinking Violet, who kept a facial scar as a memorial to Vernado Boy, or Vernado Bay Boy. Yeah, I'm I'm just, I'm still learning the Legion, so <laughs> I know that a lot of them are named Boy and Lad. So I apologize, but uh, yeah, I think I'm trying to think of when they were romantically entangled, uh, Peter and Nina. I want to say it was Marvel Now, uh, Cable, and X Force. Um, it's where I, I think. I think we had, like, three X-Force books. I think we had X-Force, Uncanny X-Force, and Cable and X-Force going at the same time. I could be mistaken, though. But uh, this was in that weird time where Marvel was, like, putting everybody in yellow armor. So I think, like, this X-Force team had, like, yellow yellow armor, and all-new X-Factor had yellow armor, and Iron Man was in yellow armor. But I don't remember much of that series. Um, I think that was, like, the last time that I felt... 
that uh, the Xbox were were heavily heavily glutted. Uh, there was just way too many of them to to really follow. Um, and maybe one of these days I'll go back. Probably not though. Um, and Domino, we we learn here that uh, that her emotional scars are things she wants to keep. So I suppose it would stand to reason that. Her physical ones were a, a reminder of uh, what she suffered in the Xeno canisters. Uh, we learned here, I mean, Domino takes the good and the bad, so it, it definitely could stand to reason that she uh, that she was offered healing and turned it down. Uh, Damien continues, I don't remember anything about Colossus in issue one. Did, did his Russian mission involve his brother Mikhail? He seems to be painting him, and I can't think of another character who would give Colossus a cryptic note in Russian. I'm presuming the the note Beast refers to belongs to Peter. And uh, Colossus in issue one of X-Force, I believe he showed up in, in a single panel. I think it was just he was in the in the hull of uh, one of Kitty's boats. And we heard that uh, that something bad went down in Russia. And then we saw some of the uh, survivors of uh, whatever went down in Russia, where Gene and uh, the Morlock healer, were trying to evaluate them or examine them and find out where they felt pain, but they couldn't narrow it down because they were in pain everywhere. Um, but for as for Colossus, I don't know that we've seen him since just him huddled up in the bottom of uh, Kitty's boat. It uh, felt very, very weird that they would uh, that they would drop him in there and just not mention him again for. Uh, Seven issues, you know, outside of, of course, the X-Men Fantastic Four bit where he's just running around the background. Um, and for the, uh, for Mikhail, I don't know. I don't know if it's about Mikhail. Uh, and the letter, I would assume definitely it's Peter's with, uh, with the Russian writing on it, but I don't know. I don't know anything about whether or not Mikhail's going to show up. I don't know. You know, Mikhail is one of the characters that I I had this really weird, inflated sense of import about him. Uh, when I came into the X-Books, he was a fairly big deal. You know, the uh, the the gold team, like, went into the void, and they found him in that, in that community, and they brought him back, and he went insane, and he took over the Morlocks, and... And then you found out just how powerful he was, and then we go into Age of Apocalypse, and he's one of the horsemen. So I always had this weird feeling of import about Mikhail, so I'm wondering if we'll see him anytime soon. A lot of folks reading, along with the present-day stuff, will know. Um, maybe he'll show up in X of Tens? I don't know. Uh, now, uh, Damien wraps up with, uh, The Central Assassin story was cleverly done. I wonder if the negative domino will turn out to be Vanessa slash copycat from the 90s X-Force. There's definitely a lot of 90s nostalgia around. Well, by now we know that uh, it hasn't been explicitly said that it is Vanessa or not. I, I, I would venture to say it was not, but uh, I remember when that reveal happened, it gave, uh, gave a lot of comic shops in the area the ability to uh, mark up two books as being the first appearance of a domino. So there was that. That was uh, definitely a very, very 90s thing, but... I don't know if we've seen Vanessa in a while. Um, I'm trying to think here. I think the last time I remember seeing her was maybe in a Deadpool story, but I, I couldn't tell you when that was. But I I don't know when we've uh, when we've last seen her. I wonder if she's even still still uh, you know walking walking this earth. 
But thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on this issue, Damien. It's always it's always a treat to hear from you, so thank you. And uh, speaking of treats, we have a message from our friend Jeremiah. Now, he has just finished reading Marauders number 1, and he says, Chris, like I mentioned to you, I'm finally getting to the Dawn of X books. I read Marauders number 1 and listened to the podcast today. Good stuff. As usual, I enjoyed your read-through and analysis. Well, thank you so much. Uh, Jeremiah continues, I have to say I felt a little like you when you talk about seeing things in the story that might be nothing or not there when I read this one. And yeah, that's uh, definitely one of my one of my reading handicaps is uh, is really getting caught up in the scenery. And <laughs> it's something I've it's something I've both tried to embrace and kind of move to the back burner, but uh, or maybe find a happy medium where I'm not. I'm not wasting everybody's time with weird hot takes about stuff that doesn't matter. I mean, I think I talked about Dreadpool over in Major X wearing an X-Men belt for longer than anybody, for longer than it took them to draw it. You know, that's basically uh, what I do. Uh, uh, Jeremiah continues. When Kitty gets on the island and is talking to the little mutant where she says that the kid must be the one that everyone wants to fight, I think the kitty looks very odd in that one panel. Her face is dark and there's a weird glint in her eye. And I think that was an attempt at, uh, like, making her look no-nonsense. You know, like, she was, uh, <laughs> like, this was her tough girl face. Like, she was mad at this kid for uh, for making fun of her, for not being able to pass through the gateways. Uh, Jeremiah continues, I must have read that page six times to see if I was missing something. I felt like she was being depicted that way to signify something. I mean, she almost looks evil in that one panel. I came up with nothing, though, and moved on. And Yeah, I'm... I'm pretty sure it was nothing. It was, uh, I think that was an attempt at humor, uh, which it's hard to do in comics, as we're finding out with, uh, well, plenty of these books. Because uh, a lot of these books are angling toward comedy, and uh, it's not always, uh, it's, it's very seldom successful. I think the funniest bits are probably in New Mutants at this point, whereas a lot of the other books are trying comedy, and it's, just not doing it. Um, Jeremiah continues, I agree that the fight with the Russians does seem to be very brutal and over the top for the X-Men. I put it up to that I put it up to that if these guys are going to be called the Marauders, then they need to be the tough mutants. I remember the original Marauders as being very violent. Uh, weren't they the ones who carried out the mutant massacre? I thought that making Kitty and the rest of her team fight in a more violent fashion must be the callback to the old team. And yet the, uh, yes, the Marauders were uh, the ones behind the uh, the Morlock Massacre, the Mutant Massacre, and uh, that's why, the uh, as you continue, you're going to hear people kind of question why Kitty named them the Marauders. Yeah, that might have actually happened in the first issue. I can't remember off the top of my head, but uh, when they ask who they are and she says the Marauders because she was on the spot, you know. But uh, yeah, there's going to be some more mention of how that's an inconvenient name for the team. And uh, and definitely, I agree, the uh, the fight, uh, Kitty was especially brutal, like phasing people into one another, phasing bars into people. Very over-the-top and uh, a little off-putting, if, if I'm being honest. Uh, Jeremiah continues, I like the idea of Iceman and Pyro being on the same team. There could be a lot of great fire and ice jokes. Uh, Game of Thrones, Song of Fire and Ice references being the most obvious ones. And I, I like them together as well. Um, I think that they are uh, they're a fun they're a fun tandem. They're a fun duo. Uh, they're both 
they're both silly, you know? Um, and, of course, they're both very powerful as well, which is why they're surrounding Kitty uh, for this uh, for this book. But they are funny. They are lighthearted. And uh, I'm digging it. I'm digging them together. Uh, Jeremiah wraps up with, Finally, I enjoyed the setup in this book. I want to know why Kitty cannot use the gateways. I want to know what Bishop is investigating. I want to know what the deal is with Emma Frost, Kitty, and the Hellfire Corporation. Also, what is there between Emma Frost and Storm? All in all, it was a fun issue, had a good story, good action for once, and made me want to see what happens next. I can't ask for much more from that from a single comic. And yeah, uh, I've mentioned it probably a half dozen times already, but uh, Marauders was a book I was never, ever going to pick up. I was just, I was fine leaving it on the on the rack. And uh, my damn completionist nature got the better of me, and for once, it paid off. I This was my Dark Horse book. I didn't think I'd like it. I didn't think I'd want to read it. I thought that, you know, maybe in a few years, I'll, I'll start pulling these out of the 50-cent bin. But, uh, no, I love it. It's a really, really good book. It... Uh, is a lot of callbacks and a lot of looking to the future. Um, it's a real, real good balance of nostalgia and the today, and that's something that it's very hard to do in these uh, in these comics, especially with how often things are rebooted and things are written out and things are retconned. And this book actually walks that tightrope of like paying homage to what came before and using everything. To set up the future, and uh, and every time we finish an issue, I think I only had a problem with one issue of Marauders, and that was simply because I thought Kitty was really annoying during it. I think that was a, I think that might have been Marauders number two, but uh, ever since then, um, I don't think there's an issue I've read of Marauders where I can't wait to get to the next one. So probably the strongest book of the line. It's not always my number one, but I think it's the most consistently strong. Of the entire Dawn of X line, it's the the worst it's going to do is slightly annoy you, <laughs> whereas some of these other books might make you mad, you know. But uh, thank you so much for your thoughts, Jeremiah. I look forward to hearing much more from you. And um, I mean, you still got a few of the number ones to go, including everybody's favorite Fallen Angels, and I I really look forward to hearing your thoughts on that. But uh, if anyone out there would like to get a hold of me and tell me your thoughts. Please feel free to do so. I'm on Twitter at Ace Comics, and uh, the old Gmail box is weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. I'm not really good at calls to action, um, but uh, hey, if you like this show, maybe tell some people. Uh, we've experienced a bit of a drop <laughs> over the past uh, little while, and I understand. I understand. I'm, I'm very much a uh, realist when it comes to podcast listening and... Uh, uh, right now we're exploring a niche of a niche of a niche, you know? We're not just talking about comics. We're not just talking about X-Men comics. We're talking about a specific era of X-Men comics. So I understand that this is not going to be, you know, a a million-listen show at, 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 ever, you know? But I do put a lot of uh, time and effort into it. And um, if you dig the show, um, please uh, consider you know, telling people. Let people know that it's out there. Um, I, I don't, I totally understand that the frequency in which I'm putting these out, um, it invites the, uh, 
the old notion of the tipping point. And that's something I've talked about, not on this program, but other programs on this channel where you have a backlog, right? Yeah, it could be a backlog of something that you're indifferent to. It could be a backlog of something that you're kind of into. Or it could be a backlog of something that you absolutely love. But there's a tipping point, right? I mean, I've gone from having stacks of comics that were like five inches tall. And it's like, yeah, I can get to all of those, right? But then a couple months will go by and it'll double in size. And it's like, yeah, maybe I can get to those. And then it'll, then it'll double in size again. And it's like, I'll pick out the books I want to read from there. And then it'll double size again. And it's like, okay, forget it. <laughs> it's a wash. I can't do any of it. So I know we're on, what, episode 61. So there's probably like 40 hours of this program out there in the world right now. So I understand that it, it might be overwhelming. So I also understand that... Uh, I'm not the most entertaining or engaging fellow in the world, so it is what it is. But if you do dig the show, eh, please just consider you know, letting other people know that it's uh, something that exists. If, if not, that's cool. We're all still friends. But, uh, but if, you, if you can help a, help a fella out, I'd very much appreciate it. Um, now, for uh, show notes and blog posts, you can go to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. Um, the site for this program in particular is xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can chat with us over on Facebook at 90sxmen, where I just shared a French-language version of the first appearance of Quanan or Revanche, or whatever the hell they were calling her. Betsy with a perm, basically. And uh, I mentioned that uh, it would probably make as much sense to me in French as it did in English, because it is a bonkers story. So if you want to see stuff like that, 90s X-Men on Facebook. Uh, also, the full audio archives are at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. They are there waiting for you if you're interested. So I think that's where we'll put a button in it for today. I want to thank you so, so much for listening. Um, the voice is uh, in and out. Hopefully it'll... Uh, Hopefully it'll be better. I, I drank a whole lot of tea today, so hopefully it's uh, hopefully it 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 wasn't as uh, horrible as the past couple of days here. I might have to I might have to go drive through for a test at, at some point here, but uh, we'll see. Fingers crossed that uh, it doesn't come to that. But uh, once again, thank you so much for hanging out and sharing your time with me. It really really means a lot. And until next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya.
Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 69 of X-Lapsed, and uh, it's X-Force Day. And uh, if you look at this cover, we see Domino, Wolverine, and Kid Omega in, like, their safari or jungle gear, which I feel like if this issue came out in the mid-90s would be a sign that we're going to get some Toy Biz figures with uh, these very costumes, because they did a lot of that weird stuff back then. Anyway, let's get into it here. This is X-Force, Volume 6, Number 9. Had a May 2020 cover date. The story's called The Moral Jungle. Written by Benjamin Percy, with art by Joshua Cassara. Colors, Dean White. Letters, VCs, Joe Caramagna. Designs, Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits, Robinson White Sobolski. Cover price, $3.99, and went on sale March 18th of 2020. Now we open... With a weird game of uh, spin the bottle mixed with Russian roulette, uh, Scout, who is a character I didn't even know was a thing, is officiating a round pitting Wolverine versus Dakin or Dakin or however you say the kid's name. Now you see they both have their fists held up to their own heads, and should the bottle point at them when it stops spinning, they gotta pop their clothes. You know, family time is a is a real good thing in the in the howlet. Uh, Home, I guess. Well, it turns out the thing stops while it's pointing at Dakin, who then, as the rules dictate, drives his claws through his own brain. He ain't dead or anything, he's just gonna need some, you know, healing time. This is a Wolverine family member, of course. Now, it's worth noting, for those of you who were as confused as I was about this Scout character, I did a little bit of research. Scout is Gabby Kinney, the clone of X-23, who as far as I can remember, is a clone of Wolverine, so I guess it makes perfect sense. Now, I gotta hand it to Percy here for not just jamming X-23 in here, right? I mean, I feel like, you know, continuity between the books is, uh, you know, a little slippery. So we know from reading that issue of X-Men a few months back that X-23 is in the vault with Darwin and uh, Sink. So it's nice to know that at least someone on the creative team is reading the rest of the line. So, thumbs up to you there. So now, where in the world are we? Where is this happening, this Russian roulette spin the bottle dealie? Well, we've heard rumblings and rumors of a place like this existing. It's where the Krakoan elite go to meet, eat, and uh, eventually bang. It's the Green Lagoon. And, oh boy, do we get an awesome two-page splash of this joint. It is... Amazing. I mean, like, everybody's here, and it's awesome. Uh, we see the Blob serving drinks in, like, a tent-sized Hawaiian shirt. Uh, Dazzler's performing on stage. Even Professor X and Magneto can be seen hanging out here. It's it's just a really, really fun page. Now, if you're following along with the show and you're not reading the issues here and you don't feel like picking this one up, do yourselves a favor and just track down this two-page spread. Uh, it's pages four and five of the comic, so it's more than likely that Marvel included it with their preview packets. So anywhere they're previewing this book or reviewing this book, you should find this page. So it shouldn't be too hard to come by. Now, staying at the Lagoon, we shift our focus over to Sage and the newly revived Domino. 
Sage, it's worth noting, is very much off-duty. Her hair is down and everything, which Domino immediately points out. Sage responds by noting how happy and light Domino appears to be. Now, they talk a bit about all the trauma that Domino went through prior to her death, and Domino kind of shrugs it off. Sage asks if uh, those memories have been erased, which, I mean, if we're remembering right, Domino's whole thing is that she wanted to be brought back, like, whole, with all of her experiences intact, right? Well, Domino shrugs again and comments that she's aware of all the stuff that happened, but it's almost as though it happened to somebody else. Huh. Yeah, I think we're going to be talking about that later. Uh, This doesn't make much sense to Sage, uh, especially considering Dom's final wishes. Domino shrugs again and suggests that perhaps she decided not to include all of her poisonous memories and experiences. Huh. Yeah, we'll be back to that later. First, let's do our roll call. Wolverine, Scout, Dakin, Marvel Girl, Domino, Sage, Black Tom Cassidy, Gorgeous George, Beast, and Kid Omega. Then, you know, two pages of credits. It's worth noting here, Scout, Dakin, and Marvel Girl, they just... (laughs) We're not going to see them again, I don't believe. But I guess we had slots on the roll call we just really needed to fill. Okay, back to comics and back to the lagoon. We go to Black Tom, who is busy... Black Tomming around, uh, acting like a big old paranoid weirdo. It would seem he's getting kind of burned out on all of his duties, and he is suddenly attacked by Gorgeous George. If you've never heard of this one before, well, I doubt you'd be alone. Uh, Gorgeous George was one of the vaunted nasty boys, and uh, not the knobs and sags variety either. These were some goofballs from the early Peter David X Factor series, so... Uh, the Nasty Boys, I believe they reported, or they, they answered to Mr. Sinister, I believe, so didn't we haven't seen them much since. Now Sage steps in and super kicks George, which prompts a full-scale bar fight. Wolverine and his family leap into the fray, and before we know it, it's a fracas. Beast steps in to inform Wolverine that, uh, hey, all that violence you got, I need it pointed elsewhere, so... We're going we're gonna to move into that right now, but first, an info page with some stuff regarding Terra Verde. Uh, the little nation went completely off the grid after our last go-round there, and now this is obviously what X-Force is going to have to be looking into. And back to comics, our team for this outing is just, uh, well, the three from the cover, Domino, Wolverine, and Quentin. Here, Logan chats up Dom about her new lease on life. She comments that she's finally able to sleep again, which doesn't exactly pass Logan's smell test, but he doesn't really press her on it. He just wants her to be happy. Quentin goes to uh, step through a Kurokoan gateway to Terra Verde, and uh, he winds up call me Kading smack dab into it, as in he can't go through it. Which you might be wondering, has he now been forsaken by Krakoa? Well, no, 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 that's not it at all. Actually, there's just something blocking the other end of the gate. And so Wolverine jams his claws through the thing, and when he pulls back, they're covered in jellied blood. Quentin pulls out his psychic cannon gimmick and dislodges the blockage. Now that blockage, by the way, was a whole bunch of coagulated bodies and vegetation. Now once inside, through the portal, Quentin gets beast on the walkie and asks why Jean and Sage weren't part of this mission. Which, uh, yeah, it's a pretty good question, isn't it? Beast says they're, like, on R&R right now, and that uh, he'll be their man in the chair for this mission. And immediately, I wondered if uh, maybe Jean was given time off since, you know, last time Beast made her kill all those uh, plant people? I don't know, maybe. I think it's going to be more than that, but that's what I was thinking when I read this the first time. 
Now, as for Sage not being there, eh, let's not look a gift horse in the mouth, right? Now, Beast tells them they need to find President Kokomb, and, uh, well, no sooner does he say that than they do. Unfortunately, he's strung up, uh, like, uh, as Domino puts it, a biological chandelier. Like, he's just all sorts of messed up here, and he's, he's quite dead, of course. Quentin performs a telepathic uplink of some of the botanicals for Beast to examine, and he notes that there are Mayan markings on them. I probably ought to mention by now that Choir keeps calling McCoy Beastie, which old Hank doesn't seem to appreciate, and uh, it isn't nearly as funny as I think it's intended to be. Eh. Now Wolverine steps out onto the balcony, and we get a real good look at Terra Verde, and the whole village is overcome with those same weird botanicals. Next, an info page, and Beast is talking about telefloronics. And there's a bit in here about Terra Verde's history of worshipping plants and uh, plant gods or something like that. Back to comics. Our team proceeds through the overgrown jungle. In a cute bit, Quentin complains about how hot and sticky it is. And so, Wolverine performs a bit of on-the-spot tailoring, pretty much ripping Quentin Quire's clothes to uh, very fashionable shreds. They happen across a weird feline-plant-beast hybrid thing. And Quentin once again inquires why Gene and Sage aren't here. Wolverine assumes that this little trip was never intended to be a diplomatic visit. And so it's just the herdier members of the team who were needed. Domino isn't so sure about that and feels like Quentin's question has merit. And altogether they wonder if maybe there's something Beast isn't telling them. Speaking of Beast... He's still on Krakoa, and he's looking to bring in some backup for the X-Force team. And, uh, it's Black Tom, who is, as per usual, is busy Black Tomming. Beast tells, suggests that Tom needs a break from Krakoa, and so he's got a job for him. Meanwhile, back in, uh, in Terra Verde, Quentin Quire is being overcome by a whole lot of edge. He makes a frantic call to Beast, revealing that Terra Verde itself isn't a hostile country, but perhaps an angry god. And we are to be continued. Next episode, we're going to go giant size with Nightcrawler, but first, let's talk about another very solid issue of X-Force. Now, to be honest, I wasn't expecting to revisit Terra Verde quite so quickly, but I'm happy that we're there. I'm happy that this is being addressed. That was a, a real neat, loose end that uh, I was looking forward to having tied up, so it's nice that we're getting at least some more uh, in that direction. We probably ought to begin our discussion with the heaviest part of the issue, which, at least in my opinion, is all about Domino. Now, clearly, she's back. And obviously, we didn't know she was going to be dead long. Um, we saw that she was on the cover of this issue. Uh, she died at the last page of last issue, so... We weren't expecting this one to uh, to be backburnered for very long. So she's back, and what's more, she's happy. Now, all the pain and torment she experienced toward the end of her last life, I guess, uh, particularly all the just damn utter insanity she was put through at the hands of Zeno in South Korea, is gone. Like, she says she knows that it happened, right? It just feels to her like it might have happened to somebody else. She's aware of the things that went down. Now let's talk about that. Because the way I look at it, this could be due to a couple of different things. The first angle we can look at is Professor X diddled with her memories prior to the resurrection. 
that's right back to our X-lapsed theory A, right? I mean, that's we've been talking about this almost every single episode. Xavier would have to realize that, despite Dom's wishes, that she'd be much more useful and effective without all the baggage. I mean, she was clearly a different person after the events of uh, the body shop in South Korea. And so maybe the professor preferred her to her pre-Zeno, you know, personality and behavior. That really, that really makes me want to see Domino's will, if in fact she had one. And I mean, we've heard very, we've heard very little to this point about the the concept of a mutant will. We only know that they exist, and that some of them are pretty crazy. Some of them want to be brought back with Magneto's powers and in Magneto's body, right? We've heard this. You know, if Domino didn't have a will, well, you'd hope that Xavier would have abided by what Colossus told him as it pertained to Domino's dying wish. But we just don't know. Now, another angle we can look at is another fairly well-trodden concept for this program, and that's that these resurrected mutants are indeed not the same characters, right? I mean, sure, they have the same memories, which is to say they know that certain things happened, right? But it's as though those things happened to other people, is what Domino says. And I mean, it is another body, another brain, may as well be another person altogether, I guess. Now, this idea kind of ignores the possibility that Xavier made any edits, at least on the face of it, because, I mean, there is the possibility that we have some sort of an amalgamation of the two, or maybe a third that I'm not even considering. I'm trying to think back to other resurrectees that we've seen and followed to see if we get any, like, clear confirmation on what they recall about their prior life and how the experiences and memories of their last life have stayed with them and, and affect them, or perhaps have not, you know, uh... Uh, if anyone listening out there can li- can think of any examples, please let me know of some characters to to maybe focus on who may have uh, debunked all this. I gotta say though, I really appreciate this take from Percy uh, with Domino acting so I don't know happy go lucky. I guess I love that it's triggering skeptical reactions from folks like Sage and Wolverine. And I gotta wonder what's gonna happen when Domino and Colossus finally share panel space again. That should be very interesting. And I also wonder if this might meet, might lead to some more of those uh, cracks in the foundation that Nightcrawler was talking about during the Crucible. You know, will will mutants be able to trust the resurrection protocols? Like, if there's no guarantee that their final wishes will be honored, then, I mean, they're pretty much at Xavier or the island's mercy. They're going to be made into whatever they're needed to be made into. I think this could lead to some very interesting stuff where they just don't trust the process. And that could lead to those little fractures and cracks that Nightcrawler was talking about growing into some great big schisms. So I guess we'll, uh, we'll, we'll think about that. Now, speaking of not being able to trust something, well, let's talk about our man in the chair, Beast. It's pretty obvious he's not telling the team everything, right? I mean, he's clearly holding back information, and uh, I'm pretty sure that is why Sage and Jean were left out of this mission, right? I mean, maybe not because Jean was forced to do something she didn't want to do, but maybe because Jean will be able to figure some stuff out. I feel like this trip into Terra Verde is uh, of the tying up loose ends variety, and Hank probably figures that Wolverine and company will 
probably ask the fewest questions and make him squirm <laughs> a little less than than a gene or a sage would. And I like this. Um, I mean, as I mentioned a few times already, I'm hoping that this little story arc here ends with Beast hitting rock bottom and then maybe starting on something of a redemption arc. Maybe we should uh, print up ball caps that say, Make Beast Fun Again. Um, I'll have to keep that in our X-lapsed bad idea pile, right? So what else? What else? What else? Uh, The Green Friggin' Lagoon. How much fun was this? Uh, Seeing all these characters canoodling and cavorting in a social setting? I probably wouldn't mind an entire issue of this. I mean, hell, make it a giant size or an annual, and just let us watch our favorites just chat for an issue. I'm not asking for an ongoing Green Lagoon series or nothing. Just an issue will do. Just fine. But, uh... I think it's a nice way to touch base. It's a nice way to see some of these characters interact who we're just... We talked... I don't remember which episode it was, but we talked recently about casts... I think it was the last issue of X-Men that the casts are just too big, you know? And we're getting a lot of background. We're getting, like... I think we had Danny Moonstar in, in like, four issues of New Mutants and she had, like, one line, (laughs) you know? It's, uh, there, there's way too many characters here, and it's hard to, I don't know, it's really hard to identify with all the characters the way we used to. It feels like, uh, there was more of a priority placed on the characters and the interpersonals, and, and I'm pretty sure I've made this same observation slash complaint very recently. Right now, we're, we're, everything is hinging on concept rather than character, where, Hey, give us, give us a, give us an annual, give us an X Men annual where they're just hanging out at the Green Lagoon and talking and remembering old times, and we can, you know, just see how people are doing. We can check in. I think that would go a long way um, in showing how strong these characters are when they're not taking a backseat to very, very spacey concepts. Now, the art here was really good. It was nice to see Kassar's takes on all of the Krakoan characters. Um, in particular, it was cool seeing how huge he drew Apocalypse. Apocalypse is like sharing a table with Gene and Scott. And, uh, I mean, Gene and Scott look like normal human-sized folks, but Apocalypse is massive. And it really gets the point across that there, there's some huge size discrepancies here. Uh, also, the gore. There was a lot of gore here, but it was very well done. And despite being, like, really gross, it didn't feel explicitly so. Does that make does that make sense? You know, we know it's gore, we know it's gross, but it doesn't... It doesn't, uh... It doesn't insist upon itself. I don't know. All I do know is that I like the way this book looks, so <laughs> we'll leave it at that. Um, overall, I enjoyed this one a lot. I'd be almost tempted to consider this a red issue. You know, going back to the, uh... Reading order lists where certain issues were highlighted in red to signify that they were important or can't miss. I would be tempted to highlight this one in red, considering that we're dealing with some questions regarding the resurrection protocols. I feel like this is important stuff. I think that uh, we're you know we're planting seeds here that might be expanded on as we continue, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this as well. And uh, hey, speaking of which. Let's hop directly into the mailbag here. We got a lot of stuff to talk about. We're going to start with Damien, who's talking about Excalibur number eight. Now, he starts with, 
Sounds like you're really suffering with your sinuses at the moment. I know I had a ter terrible summer with my allergies, made worse by the fact that we were all trying to do things outside to alleviate the risk of coronavirus. I hope it all feels better soon. I know how frustrating it is not hearing properly. It's worse this year because you can't resort to lip reading. And yes, thank you. It's a, It's been a pretty rough few weeks here. Um, not, not outside of... Uh, you know, I'm familiar with this sensation is what I'm trying to say. Uh, I'm, I'm used to going through this during the season change, but this year, the summer just refuses to let go. <laughs> Usually, um, our weather breaks probably early, mid-October, and then we stay around like 70 to 80 degrees Fahrenheit, but this October, we were still in the hundreds, you know? Um, even just this week, our temperatures are breaking into the 90s. I mean, it, we're we're... As I record this, we're a week away from Thanksgiving, and we're in the 90s. It's ridiculous. So my poor sinuses just can't make up their mind here. Uh, it doesn't know what time of year it is, and it, it really, really sucks. But so far, I'm doing good. I think uh, I'm doing a lot better here. My the, the hearing isn't as cloggy or echoey as it uh, was a little while back, but it's still it's still not perfect yet, or as perfect as I can get. Uh, Damien continues. I need to start by repeating something I said in my feedback to the last issue of Excalibur. Hunting with dogs has been banned in the UK since 2004. I think this is the crime Betsy's worried about. There's an awareness of how involved the upper classes are in hunting, and a, number, and a member of the establishment would be scared of getting caught hunting. A few years ago, there was a bit of an uproar when footage of the queen strangling a grouse went viral. Shooting grouse remains legal, and apparently it's common to break the necks of injured birds, but public opinion has become very anti-hunting, so it was a very big story. If Captain Britain, who, who self-identifies as establishment in this issue, was to be filmed actually breaking the law on hunting, it would be a really big story. And uh, that's a very good point. I think I focus more on the mutant element than the public figure deal. Uh, I just assumed that should Betsy and company go down for hunting, Cullen would as well. Um, it seemed like a no-win situation for him, so why would he you know, turn himself in? And also, I wondered, like, how would the coven help with any of that? Because he was reaching out to the coven, and I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, Damien continues. You talked a bit about identity politics and how it interacts with fandom, and I think there is some strong political material in this issue. Marginalized groups often identify with the mutant metaphor. From the 60s, creators have compared mutant rights to the civil rights movement. Lee and Kirby started by, by comparisons to anti-Semitism and racism, but as time went on, writers like Claremont added on feminism and gay liberation. I am a gay man who grew up in the intense homophobia of the 1980s, and I definitely identified with the struggle to be accepted that mutant kind faced. People forget how political the X-Men were in the 80s and 90s, in part because it's easy to overlook that element when you're not marginalized. The challenge writing the mutant metaphor today cannot be underemphasized. Readers reflect the political reality of the world outside the comics page and have incompatible expectations of stories. You cannot remove the anti-mutant sentiment from the X-Men stories, and you end up inevitably reflecting real-world situations. Jubilee says she's still a mutant when she's not using her powers, and I'm reminded of being told that I shouldn't flaunt my homosexuality by mentioning that I have a husband. I am gay, even if I don't tell anyone I'm gay. I'm married to a man. That is no different from a man who is married to a woman, and if people want me to hide that, that fact, the problem is them, not me. The scene at the dinner table is far more real and important to me, 
important to me for that real-life parallel which other people may find heavy-handed or forced. That's it. That's a very good point, and not one I considered. Um, I just took it as like a semantic discussion, and perhaps, perhaps a bit of virtue signaling from the writer, but didn't actually consider the ramifications of what was being said and how true the sentiment actually is. And I mean, this is why I love this mailbag portion of this program, having such amazing folks along with us for this ride here. It's, um, I feel like I learn something every day, and uh, and being able to see things through other people's point of views is. Is fantastic. Uh, Damien continues. The struggle that modern writers have is that they just don't have to deal with a metaphor, as they have to tell stories with characters who are marginalized. These uh, the stories take on different textures once you have characters who aren't just stand-ins for the marginalized, but are also members of this group. You get the real-life situation of intersectionality. Richter is gay, working-class, and Hispanic, as well as being a mutant. Cullen Bloodstone is gay, white, and aristocratic. They have as many differences as they do similarities. Cullen only sees gayness because he's blind to his privilege and thinks that he's the same as Richter. This kind of real-life political content can feel like it's virtue signaling, but it is the logical extension of each character's experience. We often talk about whether or not changes are in character and we can only infer from past stories. This encounter fits how Cullen is presented. He has the kind of arrogance and sense of entitlement that he would hit on everyone he finds attractive. Another very good point. Very, very good point. Um, to me, and I mean, um, I don't have any sort of first, second, third-hand experience with anything and have absolutely no credibility, but uh, I still can't shake the feeling that this scene was a little reductive. Um, I mean, a forced kiss is kind of unsubtle. Um, I mean, hitting, I, I don't know if maybe maybe I'm being too uh, specific, you know. Maybe I'm expecting hitting on and kissing uh, to be two different things. I just, I can't help but shake the feeling that if a male character forced himself on a female character in such a way, this scene would have been viewed far differently. I mean, even if the man was clearly portrayed as a villain or just an asshole, I'm not sure how well this scene would have played. I don't, I don't know if that makes any sense, uh, or if I'm just talking out my ass right now. As I've mentioned time and again, I'm uncomfortable talking about things I have very little in the way of first, second, third-hand experience in, but uh, I still come away from this scene feeling like it was... Uh, it could have been more done more subtly. Um, but, I mean, again, what do I know? <laughs> uh, Damien continues. For this reason, I don't find it as forced as situations in other books where two gay characters are set up as a couple. I remember years ago in the issue of Hulk where Rick Jones got married, Peter David put North Star and Hector together solely because they were the only gay men at the event. That was forced. This felt entirely in character to me. And oh boy, poor North Star. Uh, we could probably go on for days about how he was used and abused as nothing more than, like, the gay character. Um... Hell, you know, we could probably spend hours just talking about the way he was depicted during the Chuck Austin Uncanny run. That was some bad stuff. I, I didn't write that stuff, and I feel the need to apologize for it. That's, that is bad stuff. Oof. You know, and uh, with, Nor- with North Star, I, I don't want to say I took issue with North Star's own wedding issue, um, but I, I think it could have been done, I think it could have been done better. Um... I felt like the entire deal was a, a little bit stunty, um, and that Marvel was racing to be the first mainstream comics company to do 
the the same sex wedding. And as such, I feel personally like they did North Star a disservice. Um, the entire relationship felt like a whirlwind. And I get why the you know the, the event is important, both in comics and society, but it really felt like Marvel was more focused on beating DC to doing this than actually telling a meaningful story. And I feel like with something as big as this, you need to tell a meaningful story. I remember I was on a message board around the time this came out, and a uh, discussion about this was, uh, was kind of, I don't want to say heated, but it was a thing that was going on in comics at the time. People were talking about it. And uh, the question I asked was, what's North Star's husband's name? And nobody could answer the question. Nobody knew his name. And it's like, hmm. You know, I, I, it just felt like, I don't know, it just didn't feel as special as it should have when you couldn't even name the other person in the relationship. Again, this is me possibly talking out of my ass. So I, I take it with a, with a shaker or two of salt. Uh, Damien continues. I also feel I have to comment on the foolishness of the speakers you had on your comics course. When you study something as an academic discipline, you have to accept that you will look at small amounts in great detail and won't necessarily know everything. It's essential to remain humble enough to accept that you could learn more from someone else, even if they're not an academic. I have a degree in theology, and my best grades were in biblical studies, but I'm not a believer, and I know that most Christians will be more familiar with the Bible than me. Even now, 24 years from my finals, I think I could give a three-hour lecture on the first chapter of John's Gospel, but couldn't even tell you what's in chapter two. I would have thought discovering that a living Hispanic artist was responsible for a panel that they were using to show shorthand in comics would be a great spur to further study and would greatly enhance their work. The fact is, the fact that it's drawn by a Hispanic man doesn't instantly excuse it, but it should be acknowledged and investigated. And yes, and, and I mean, I totally understand that the fact that Perez drew this panel doesn't outright excuse it as being, you know, unracist or not in their words, you know, shorthand. But I felt as though these Ph.D. lecturers, because they were Ph.D.s, they told us that a lot. They really should have known a thing or two about the topic they were allegedly educating us on. Um, it felt like, and I mean, talk about reductionist, it feels like like all their comics knowledge came from like a BuzzFeed list or something. It's like top 10 you know, racist panels in comics. Number seven will shock you, you know. I thought, I almost expected them to drift off into a discussion about the, you know, the top 60 worst Rob Liefeld drawings or something. It was, eh. <laughs> it was irritating. Um, now, as a self-proclaimed fake-ass comics historian, and uh, probably the only person in that lecture with an intrinsic interest in comics and their history, stuff like this felt very half-assed and dismissive of so many factors. Um, I mean, I already mentioned the sales risks. You know, there's there's also the idea that editorial might have been fearing for their jobs, and you know, heck, in certain parts of the country and the world, their safety in presenting non-white characters this way. I don't know. There's a lot to chew on. Um, sadly, our guest speakers would have rather engaged in like inch-deep, mile-wide outrage rather than actual facts that were rooted in like the gestalt and and actual context. So, you know, I, I they were there. They had. They had a point they wanted to make, and uh, they weren't interested in anything else, unfortunately. Uh, Damien continues. 
It's interesting to me that Trevor Von Eden considers elements of his Black Lightning comics to be racist, but he still drew them. He chose not to fight that fight, even though he is clearly a champion of civil and creator rights. From reading interviews, it seems that he would have... that he thought he could have more influence as an insider going along with some tone-deaf things than risk by risking his career fighting everything. Maybe a similar thing happened with Perez, but it's their job to interrogate the added information. That's absolutely a possibility. Um, and I mean, I don't know George Perez. Uh, I almost met him this one time, but uh, he looked like he was having a pretty rough day, so I chickened out from waving and saying hello. Uh, I mean, for all I know... He was drawing exactly what he was told to draw in that panel, or maybe he was drawing what he figured he was expected to draw. I don't know if he's a religious fellow, or even comes from a religious family, so the iconography may very well have been shorthand even to him. Damien continues, It's interesting that people who are not comics fans would choose to study the cultural influence of comics, but maybe it's easier if you're not involved in it. I know I found it easier to study theology than some of my friends with faith. It's easier to question things you don't hold as articles of faith. And I definitely feel like I might have been a little too inside, you know, the comics industry to appreciate what this lecture was supposed to provide. Though, you know, if I weren't, I'd probably blindly accept everything they said. Um, I mean, they, you know, after all, they were PhDs. They, they did tell us that about 70 hundred times over the course of 45 minutes. So they got to know what they're talking about, right? Eh, you know, the appeal to authority there is uh, strong. Uh, on that subject, they also touched on another big academic talking point as it pertains to comics, and it's another one that really gets under my skin, and it's the formation of the Comics Code Authority, which, as expected, they distilled down to angrily waving their fists in the air and cursing that damn Dr. Wortham, which, uh, if you're a listener of Weird Comics History, you'll know that uh, that's going to annoy me. <laughs> now... If you haven't listened to the first five episodes of Weird Comics History, where Reggie and I spent like eight hours discussing the formation of the Comics Code and the relatively very small part Wortham actually played in it, I'll link to them in the show notes. Um, Those episodes are, if I do say so myself, probably some of our best work. Uh, We put hundreds of hours of research into those, so I'll link to them, and if, uh, if folks haven't heard them before and are interested... Uh, and want to know why I get annoyed when people distill the Comics Code Authority over to damn that Dr. Wortham, then you'll know why after you listen to that show. Uh, Damien wraps up with, It's amazing how deep you're going with these books and how many directions you're sending me off in. Thank you. It's so much fun to really dig deep. It gives me so much extra enjoyment. To which I say no, thank you. Um, it's amazing getting such awesome discussion here. Um, Who'd have thought we'd be able to have such deep, meaningful, and thought-provoking conversations on an X-Men podcast, right? It's, uh, it's, I can't even put into words. It's just so awesome, and, and thank you so, so much. Next, I got a message from Chris Bailey, who hopefully I'll be getting back into the recording uh, studio with pretty soon here. He wanted me to pass along that there's currently a really good deal for Marvel Unlimited, a whole year subscription for only $60, which, that's what, like five bucks a month? Not bad at all. So if you're wanting to check out some of the books we're talking about here, and if you're, a, unlike me, if you're able to enjoy comics digitally, that's eh, a pretty good option for you all. So I think that's a, that'd be a pretty cool thing if, uh, if you don't have that, and if you're interested in it, that's a, that's a screaming deal. And uh, you, you can uh, put, in, put in code XLAPS. No, 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 there's, there's no XLAPS code. They don't, they don't know that I exist, and uh, they, they probably never will. So 
if they if there is an option, you know, how did you find us? Say, say X lapsed, and they'll be like, well, what the hell's that? And then they'll come and shut me down for using artwork. But uh, thank you, <laughs> thank you, Chris, for uh, for uh, turning us on to that. Next, Mark Green Lantern HG. He is talking about well, one of uh, Damien's recent letters here. He says, great episode, Chris. I'm on board with rioting until we get a Generation X comic. You're damn right. We need one of those. And listening to Damien's letter made me realize what's stopping Professor X, or anyone for that matter, from creating their own mutant. If memories can be manipulated before rebirth, then what's making us uh, believe that that these are, in fact, the mutants we know? What if they're erasing their personalities and substituting them with someone else? Now I need proof that this is our X-Men. Sorry to sound so negative, but I don't know how else to feel. Great job, Chris. Yeah, it's very, very true, and it's so appropriate that I'm reading this with this episode, where we, we've got Domino coming back to life totally different from uh, how we left her, right? I mean, she was tormented, tortured, couldn't sleep, was just just a, a, a bundle of pain, basically. And here she is like... Yeah, that's cool, you know. It's uh it really makes you question how what goes into the resurrection process and just how how fine the tweezer can be, right? Like how many things can Professor X pluck? How many inconveniences can he pluck out of their uh, out of their minds, out of their personalities, out of their psyches? It really makes you question a lot of things. And I mean I, I, you know, I hate to be the broken record here, but we're really, that's just another, that's just another arm we're snapping off the toys here, right? I mean, the toys are getting broken more and more and more, and now, I mean, we, we don't know where this is going to end, you know? Uh, if this is going to be a repeated experiment where every time out, we start to, we start to take out the bits that don't work, you know, it's... I mean, that's kind of apocalypse, this whole thing, right? Survival of the fittest and, you know, the weak dying out. What happens if Domino dies next issue, and when she comes back again, she's a little bit changed even more? And all we're doing is gradually getting to the point where these will be completely different characters. Not just not just slightly different, but 100%, you know, different characters. It's... I worry about that. Um, I, I probably should be more optimistic and realize that, that Hickman and company have a plan, but uh, hell, you know, they might have a plan that I just don't like is, is maybe what I'm worried about. But thank you so much for, uh, for, for listening and sharing your thoughts there, Mark. Next, Andrew, Mighty Evil Doom. He's got some words about Major X number five. He says, I've really, I've really enjoyed these episodes. It's very hard to follow what is even happening, but the seemingly random nature of the plot is kind of fun. I'd be kind of interested in a Liefeld-Namor book. Oof. Well, I guess if he's doing Namor, I wouldn't have to read it, so I think I'd be okay with that. Unless it's a part of Dawn of X Wave 4, and Namor does decide to move to Krakoa, and they put Liefeld on it, then I guess we'll have to read it, won't we? But, uh... I, I do appreciate the kind words about Major X lapsed because uh, if you ask me, nobody listens to that. So uh, it's always a treat to hear that, that people have listened and have enjoyed it. And that, uh, you know, I, I am curious about how well I'm putting this together because if you're not following Major X, then 
I don't know how you're following my synopsis of it because I can barely follow my synopsis of it. It's just all over the place. But uh, <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, we're going to wrap up with a message from Ed Moore. And this is about a question I've asked a few times on this program regarding just what in the hell the Scarlet Witch is. Is she a mutant? Is she a miracle? Is she an inhuman? Is she all of the above? None of the above? Well, he wrote in and said, I think James Robinson's Scarlet Witch series pretty much cemented that she's a homo sapien sorceress who pretended to be a mutant. Well, there you have it. I, you know, I guess that's a... We talked about Franklin being unmutanted last episode. Now we have confirmation, or at least I have confirmation. Uh, the rest of you probably already knew that Scarlet Witch has been demutanted. Um, and yeah, I guess that solves a problem uh, insofar as being able to cram her into whatever movie they want to. Uh, the last I read where the Scarlet Witch's origin was discussed was during, I want to say it was Axis. I don't remember what year that was. I think it was... I'm pretty sure it was before the 2015 Secret Wars. And I know it was after AVX, so probably pencil it in around 2013, 2014-ish. And that's where we found out that uh, that she uh, and Quicksilver shared no blood with Magneto, which is uh, was like the first big sign that, uh-oh, you know, they're not mutants. And then, did I imagine that they were called Miracles? Maybe I imagine that. It's a weird thing to imagine. I'm almost annoyed at myself for doing that if that's the case. But I think they were called miracles because they couldn't think of an actual, like, real thing to call them. And now, as uh, as Ed lets us know here, she's just a human sorceress who uh, who either thought she was a mutant or pretended to be a mutant or was just uh, misidentified, I guess. So thank you for, uh, for filling in that blank for us, Ed. And... Uh, Thank you, everybody, for writing in. And if you'd like to write in, you can uh, reach me very easily. I'm at Ace Comics on Twitter and at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes at Chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com. Also, xlapsed.chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com. You can chat with us about the X-Men on 90s X-Men on Facebook. And you can hear the entire Chris and Reggie audio archives at ChrisAndReggie.Podbean.com. Of course, those... uh. Those that darn Wortham episodes are there, so uh, I will link to those if I if I remember to in the show notes. Hopefully, I'll remember to. Um, but I think that's where we'll put a pin in it today. Uh, next episode, we are of course going giant sized, and I think right after that, we're going into Hellions. So it's going to be an interesting couple of episodes coming up. Uh, at least it'll be a change of pace, right? <laughs> Sometimes that's what we need. But that's where we'll leave for today. Uh, just one more giant thank you to everyone for sharing their time with me today. And uh, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya.
How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 77 of X-Lapsed, and today we're uh, rolling on with our number 10s. We're going to be talking about X-Force, volume 6, number 10, cover dated June 2020. Uh, the story is called The Deadly Garden, written by Benjamin Percy, with art by Joshua Kassara. Colors, Guru EFX, letters, VCs, Joe Caramagna, designs, Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman, edits, Robinson White-Sabolsky, cover price $3.99. And this one went on sale July 10th of 2020. So this is a very interesting Indicia uh, issue here because the Indicia date is actually before the release date, which we almost never see. So, of course, we know the reasons why, but uh, it's still an interesting little bit of trivia, uh, at least for the physical copy of the uh, periodical magazine comic book here. Uh, I think the digital versions have been updated to reflect the actual uh, cover date, but... Hey, I'm, I'm going with physical, so uh, we're sticking with the physical. So let's get on into it here. We open in the 10 minutes ago. We're in Terra Verde, where we left Wolverine, Domino, and Kid Omega last issue. Now, Wolverine and Domino, they're having a bit of a chat about the fact that Domino came back from the dead without her traumatic memories here. Um... If you recall, she was very, very clear about wanting to keep those traumatic memories because, you know, they were a part of her. She wanted to remember everything, so she didn't want to be altered. She came back altered, and here she is being questioned about it, and she brushes it off and uh, more or less tells Wolverine to, to back off, you know. She doesn't want to answer any more questions about it. Though I gotta say, in fairness to Domino, she was killed twice last month, so she might just be confused about which resurrection Logan's talking about in the first place. Anyway, they continue walking here, and they trigger a booby trap of sorts, which nearly impales them on some very long thorns. Quentin is able to use his powers to save them, stops the thorns from coming in on them, though he claims he probably should have let them die. This way, he would instruct the Five to put a version of his own brain in their bodies during the resurrection process, so they'll follow him around like, quote, leg-humping groupies. Well, I suppose we all have our fetishes. Now, they continue making their way until they come across a pretty gross fresco or cave painting or mixed-media art exhibit. Whatever it is, it's, it's disgusting, and uh, from it, they're able to deduce that these plants have been growing here for ages. And, uh, well, they're angry. The plants, that is. Wolverine and Quentin find themselves snagged away by various vines and yoinked into their potential demises. Domino still remains, though she's completely alone and in the dark. Let's do a roll call here. Today we're going to feature Domino, Wolverine, Kid Omega, Black Tom Cassidy, Sage, Beast, and Marvel Girl. From here, a couple of pages of credits. Then an info page, and it's all about the fact that Beast done goofed. You know, he accidentally turned Terra Verde's Telefloronics into a weapon. And Terra Verde itself is now a collective plant-like intelligence. Which, uh, you know, kind of sucks. It's kind of dangerous. 
Interestingly enough, Hank spends the final paragraph of this page talking about how this is, in fact, a good thing, <laughs> which is really kind of cool. I like the way he's trying to justify this uh, this whole thing after the fact here. It's like, yeah, this is really, really bad, but, ooh, they're, they're, you know, this, this was going to happen anyway, so this is a good thing. We'll be able to figure things out. So uh, Beast is, you know, doing some mental and uh, moral gymnastics here. Back to comics. Black Tom Cassidy is about to step through a Krakoan portal en route to Terra Verde. He's having second, third, maybe even fourth thoughts, and is coming across as even more unbalanced than usual. I think he says the word veg about a dozen times on this page alone. And I gotta ask, is is veg like a, a Britishism? Like, is Percy, like, really, really proud of himself for having Tom use this word skaty 800 times this issue? Uh, this is kind of like in high school, where, like, a kid finds out about words like pub, flat, lift, and chip, and won't stop mentioning them in conversations so they can appear more worldly. Uh, it's like, dude, enough. We get it. Back to comics, back to Domino. She's in the dark, right? And so she uses that gross Krakoan Mega Man arm cannon gimmick that Forge gave her a few issues back in order to create, like, a night vision goggle over her right eye. And it's a pretty cool idea. I think it's, uh, I like the fact that we're using this weird arm cannon gimmick thing that Forge said can be anything you want it to be. And here she is using it for a very uh, pragmatic reason here. So we follow her as she follows the tracks left by Wolverine's claws. Now, as Wolverine was being yoinked away, he dug his claws into the ground and was dragged, so it gives Domino an easy path to find him. And she manages to find him, in fact, and uh, he is strapped to an altar surrounded by uh, a bunch of veg warriors. Do do I sound worldly yet? I said veg, 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 veg. Uh, She is spotted and attacked. From here, we jump back to Krakoa. Now, Beast, he's on the horn here. He's frantically trying to get a, to get a hold of the four X-Forces he sent to Terra Verde. However, nobody is responding. He then finds himself visited by Jean Grey. And she be ticked. You see, she figured Hank was up to something and decided to take a trip inside the vast library that is his mind. And, uh, you know, that, that's not cool, is it? You know, to do that without any kind of a... Yeah, well, well, we'll keep going. Now, she knows about his goof-up and the measures he was taking in order to keep it from her. She calls him a liar, to which he suggests that X-Force is a team born out of lies because they need to omit some truths in order to, you know, keep order. Jean disagrees, claiming that X-Force only exists out of trust. Trust to do the right thing for mutantum. Hank is all, okay, gonna stop you right there, and he proceeds to hit her with one of them moral dilemmas that probably sounded really, really deep in freshman ethics class. It's the, you know, would you sacrifice one to save the rest quandary, in that, yeah, Beast, you know, he effed up the president of Terra Verde's son, but he only did so in order to save countless others, Terra Verdans and Krakoans alike. Jean tells Hank to shut up at his face, because she ain't buying it. He then calls her out for intruding on his mind, which... I mean, Beast has been an absolute ass for most of this series, but dude's kind of got a point here. From here, we go to an info page. It's written by somebody. It's signed with some Russian writing, which, well, this isn't the first time we're seeing that, is it? Now, this page blames Beast for uh, pretty much everything. Uh, It talks about the threat that Telefloronics pose to everyone. It considers what might happen should the mutants lose Krakoa. 
It also makes it clear that whoever is writing this is actually, like, in the room seeing this exchange between Hank and Jean, or at least has access to it. We learn here that Jean stormed out, claiming that X-Force has been entrusted with secrets, but they can't have secrets covered by even more secrets. Uh, they need to not keep things from one another, and there has to be a, you know, some sort of a formal checks and balances system in place. And, as mentioned, this place is signed in Russian. I'm not sure if it's the same Russian word that we saw the last time. I think it probably is, but uh, I still don't know what that means, though uh, we do have our suspicions. Back to comics. Now, Black Tom is, well, he's Black Tomming all over Terra Verde, saying veg a whole lot while fighting with the veg. He's then joined by Jean Grey and Sage, the latter of whom looks like she's searching for Dr. Livingston. Uh, They make fun of her outfit for a bit, which is cute, but it doesn't feel like something Sage would do. Um, She seems a little too serious to me, and maybe a little too self-aware to knowingly make herself look quite this foolish. Anyway, our trio heads for the temple. Now inside, Quentin Quire, stop me if you heard this one before, Quentin Quire's been killed. (laughs) And it's really grotesque. He's been loaded into, like, a pod, and now has flowers and mushrooms growing out of his face. It's disgusting. He's torn to pieces, releasing a whole bunch of telefluoronic spores into the air. It's really gross. Um, So this would be Kid Omega's third death in as many months, huh? Now stop me if you heard this one. Domino dies, too. So she has three deaths in two months. This is getting ridiculous, isn't it? It's to the point where I'm expecting someone to pop like their head out of the corner of a panel and shout, like, you killed Kenny or something, because this is like this is, going, this is veering into parody. Uh, Wolverine, however, manages to slice his way through the veg. Then, Gene, Sage, and Tom do something. Gene uh, compares the temple to a hard drive and then themselves as a Trojan. Gene then... Merges minds and powers and somehow shuts down the telefloronic bunch? I'm not exactly sure what we just saw, but the good guys won, so yay? Eh? I don't know. Later, we join Wolverine in a Krakoan bath. He's soon joined by Jean, who reveals that she's quitting X-Force. Now, Wolverine is not surprised. In fact, he guessed it straight away before she even said anything. He wonders what'll happen to the group without its moral compass... And, you know, if only we had eh, maybe over a quarter a century worth of X-Force stories that didn't include Jean Grey to refer to, we'd have some sort of an idea of how X-Force might work without Jean in it. Ah, too bad we don't. Now, Jean suggests that Sage might fill that role, but then considers adding Colossus to the team, which, I mean, that's fitting, right, considering Colossus was on the cover to X-Force number one all those months before. We wrap up with Jean and Wolverine making out a bit, which I am not a fan of and I will never be a fan of. But that is where we leave it with X-Force number 10. Next episode, we reach the halfway point of the giant sizes with giant size X-Men colon Magneto number one. But first, let's talk about this issue here. Um, This felt a little uneven. I liked it for the most part. But it wasn't a comfortable read, not, not only for the grotesque Quentin Quire death scene either. This issue, and I mean, this is a very odd complaint, or maybe an odd observation, I suppose, but I feel like it was trying to tell too much story. And I mean, that's a crazy, crazy complaint in this age of decompressed storytelling, to complain that we're trying to tell too much story. Because in doing so, this issue wasn't able to give any of the threads that it was trying to cover the proper time. 
You know me, I am not a fan of decompression. But if there were a scene that might have needed a few more pages of dialogue to make a proper point, I'd say the Beast and Gene confrontation might be one of those. Because this felt very anticlimactic and so matter-of-fact that I don't think it had the proper impact. Um, we've been built into the scene for like four issues now, which, yeah, I understand would be in the same trade paperback as this issue, which is probably the whole point, but still, for those readers who waited four months not counting the COVID lapse, I think this should have been more of a satisfying payoff. Um, here, Gene just scanned Beast's mind, which feels out wildly out of character for her to do so, and told him what he did was wrong. I mean, teen Gene from the Bendis team would invade minds without a second thought, but not the real Gene, right? I feel like Gene should have discovered Beast's secret due to his own sloppiness in covering it up. You know, perhaps Hank's feelings of intellectual superiority would come back and bite him. Maybe he was a little too aloof and a little bit too pleased with himself and might have overlooked something that would have wound up spilling the beans anyway, you know? I think... I, I just think there was a better way to do this. Um... I also would have liked this scene to become a little bit more personal, more classic, you know, X-Men angsty. I mean, they wrapped this entire scene up in a paragraph in an info page. That was our climax to the scene. It was, we were being told it in a paragraph of an info page. That should not have happened. Um, the Terra Verde scenes, there's not much to them. Um, Domino and Quentin died. Again. Again. I hope this is leading somewhere, otherwise this is just awful. Uh, the last thing we all need is for me to go off on yet another tangent about how overused mutant deaths are in this era, and the Percy books in particular, so I won't. But you know my feelings on this. Oddly, with how many scenes were shortchanged in this issue, we still somehow got a few full pages of Black Tom Black Tomming around saying veg dozens of times. Was that really necessary? Did it add anything to the story other than allowing Percy to type the word veg a bunch? Eh. Uh, the ending. Gene and Logan in the hot tub. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm never going to be a fan of the Gene-Scott-Logan open relationship love triangle thing, uh, no matter how hard they try to push it. To me, it, it's Scott and Gene only. That's it. Um, this open relationship going on between the, the three of them is not something I'm ever going to glom onto. That's not a fault of the issue or this writer. It's just something I prefer we didn't see more of. I, I will concede I might be in the minority here. If so, that's fine. Uh, Gene quitting X-Force feels out of character, mostly because, to me, Gene would have never been part of X-Force to begin with. But since she was, I don't see her just walking away. I'd see her sticking around mostly to make sure things like this don't happen again. So now, in knowingly turning a blind eye to what's going on behind the curtain... I mean, it almost feels like she's kind of complicit in it, doesn't it? I mean, she knows Beast is doing this crazy, crazy stuff. Um, all this ambiguously, you know, immoral stuff. And rather than trying to put a stop to it or trying to maybe take his place as leader, she's just like, okay, now I'm going to you know, stick my head in the sand and you do what you're going to do. And uh, that just doesn't seem like Gene to me. Overall... Despite everything I just pointed out, I thought this was a good issue. Uh, they definitely left a bit of money on the table with some of these scenes, and it could have been far better, but it was still good. Uh, there is a feeling of truncation here, but at the same time, we're also rapidly approaching X of 10, so for all I know, that very well might have been the case. 
Still good, though. Still worth reading, especially if you read the previous, uh, you know, three or four issues. This one, you won't even notice uh, that this one was maybe a little bit lesser than if you're reading it in the trade, which is what Marvel's banking on. You're not even going to notice. But uh, decent, not great. So that, my friends, was X-Force number 10. But before we go, let's dip into the mailbag here. I think some of the things I might say here might be controversial, and I promise I'm not trying to be a uh, provocateur of any sort here. But uh, let's get into it here. This is a an email from Damien talking about Hellions number one. He says, Hellions 1 might be the perfect first issue. Of course, it's helped by featuring a team of characters from my era of the X-Men. I'm also becoming more and more enamored with Sassy Sinister. Honestly, this issue made my day. So much fun and intrigue. And it was really, really good. I liked it a lot, too. And Sassy Sinister is also growing on me as well. Um, I really, I just can't wait for the next issue. I, I this is, uh, I think this is going to be a Marauders-level sort of book for me, where... I didn't expect anything from it, and each time out, it might just rock my socks here. You know, we're, we're one issue in, so I'm being uncharacteristically optimistic, but uh, fingers crossed, right? Fingers crossed. Damien continues. I just wanted to offer my opinion on your response to my feedback. You said that no one should be allowed to mess with the Marvel Universe unless they had created a major non-derivative character for Marvel. I would argue that no one should create a new character for Marvel unless they hugely change their policies. It shocks me that Jim Starlin received less money for all the movies starring Thanos combined than he did for the use of KGB's real, KG Beast's real name in one of the DC movies. Similarly, Len Wein and his estate made more from Lucius Fox than from Wolverine. Okay, now I, I certainly agree that changes need to be made, especially nowadays as it pertains to things like royalties, right? 100%. 100%. I'm in agreement with you. Perhaps if the scope of comics was a bit different going back to the mid-20th century, we'd have a whole lot more happy creators out there. But it wasn't. Nobody saw the glut of comics-based movies in the future. Nobody saw that. Maybe Stan Lee did, but uh, because in every bullpen bulletins page, he was always in Hollywood working on his deals. Nothing happened, but he was always working on it. Back then, comics were just comics. Personally, I'm in the minority here. I wish we can go back to a time like that. But, I mean, I know when I'm beat. I made a comment about having skin in the game. Uh, when you, If you're going to be trusted to change, to break, to destroy a universe, a shared universe with nearly a century's worth of history, I stand by my comment that you should have skin in the game. Okay? Which isn't necessarily all financial. You know, some of it, sure, is pointed toward profit uh, and having an actual financial interest or stake in the universe that our insert flavor of the week creator here is given the green light to mangle and untangle as they see fit. That's that's secondary. The financials are secondary to me because I'm not writing anybody's contracts. I'm not paying anyone's checks. Nobody owes me a dime, and I don't owe anybody else a dime. The money is something I can't control here. My main... My point of view in insofar as skin in the game is directed toward actually having some intellectual skin in the game, such as non-derivative properties. And of course, let's, let's say, perfect scenario here, Marvel DC, they say, okay, here's the, here's the new deal going forward, you get X amount, sign on the dotted line, or don't, you know, but... There is something in place. Let's say perfect perfect world, there is something in place here where these creators can profit off of use of their characters in other forms of media. 
So that's that's you know that's our foundation. Now, non-derivative properties, characters, and concepts are important, uh, and the fact that they could be screwed with and irreversibly destroyed by the next writer that handles them is a big deal. Because say you you just you know pour your heart and soul into a character or a team book or a concept, and then you. You work on that for a few years, and then you leave the book. You go to a different book. You go to a different company. Maybe you go to the movies, right? The next creator comes on and says, you know what? I don't like what this guy did. I'm going to destroy this character. I feel like, and this is a huge might, I feel like if that were a possibility, it might give creators a little bit more respect for creations, and they might, and again, a huge might here, might not be so quick to break all the toys. Maybe stunt writing wouldn't uh, be quite the thing that it is right now. Let's bring up our friend Rob Liefeld again. Now, this is a fellow who couldn't help but to create new characters. Even going back to 1989, 1990, when his pals Todd and Jim were telling him, stop making characters for Marvel, because Marvel wasn't going to give him any of the rights. He couldn't help himself. He kept creating characters because he loved what he did. He created Shatterstar, right? Shatterstar is a character who, despite not being all that deep at creation, was was kind of a big deal. And, you know, my metric for this sort of thing is looking in a price guide and seeing what Shatterstar appearances were going for, as well as what Shatterstar's trading card was going for, because his trading cards were worth quite a bit more than a random Marvel trading card. Now, down the line, it was decided to make Shatterstar gay. Liefeld commented without passing any sort of judgment, didn't say anything derogatory. He just said that his, that wasn't his original vision for the character. Okay, So Liefeld had skin in the game in this character and disagreed with what Marvel was doing with it. Right? People rained down on him like crazy, piling on, almost gleeful, saying, Hey Rob, go F yourself, you don't own that character. You don't own that character, so you have no say. That's kind of interesting to me. I mean, sometimes we as a collective fandom will choose to stand up for a creator, and sometimes we will choose not to. Um, When it's a beloved or well-respected creator who is getting the shaft from the box office, well, then we start creating hashtags, and we change our Twitter avatars to be the character that they're being shafted for. You know, nobody's hitting Starlin with the fact that, hey, dude, you don't own Thanos. Nobody's saying that. Nobody's saying that to him. It's like, oh, man, you're getting screwed. But when it's Rob making a simple statement, he is crapped on. Now, neither of these things are good, and it's not a one-to-one thing because I'm not talking about financials here, and, of course, you know, money talks. I'm talking about the fact that the skin-in-the-game comment is more about respecting creations rather than creators. That's kind of my point of view here because I I can't control deals that are made. I can't control contracts. That's stuff that has to happen at a different level than that's way above my pay grade. I'm here to read comics and talk about comics. I'm not here to talk about what's going on behind the scenes as much because that'll just drive us all crazy. And I know I do veer into that and probably veer into it too often for my own good, but... And at the end of the day, there definitely needs to be something in place to protect creators. At the same time, I can't change the past. None of us can. And, I mean, uh, I'm not about to go up against Disney or Warner Brothers. You know, I'm just some idiot with an X-Men podcast who's clearly talking out my ass here. (laughs) So, my main point, I feel like if you're given the keys to the castle, right, 
You say you're a Jonathan Hickman, a Brian Bendis, a Jeff Johns, a Tom King, and you're told, yes, you can unmake, remake, destroy this entire fictional universe, remake it in your own vision, disregarding the fact that thousands of people before you built, toiled over, sweated over, poured their hearts and souls into for nearly a century, then maybe you have some skin in the game. If not financially, then intellectually. Don't just break things, make things as well, right? Of course, this is just me shaking my fist at a cloud because a lot of changes and protections need to be put in place before we can even get into this sort of a discussion. But hopefully, we'll eventually get to a point where we are getting new characters again and creators aren't getting the shaft. I'm all for protecting the creators, but at the same time, I'm a fan of comics. I want new ideas in comics. And I'm a superhero fan, so I want new ca- new ideas and new characters in superhero comics. I know there's plenty of great stuff out there on the indies. Frankly, I don't have the brain space for it. I'm, I'm all in on my little corner of the Marvel Universe here with the X-Men, and I want to see, see some skin in the game from uh, the creators is all. But that's just me. Hopefully, hopefully I didn't turn everybody off there. I'm... Definitely not anti-creator, so I don't want. To, I hope it doesn't come across like I sound like that. But uh, I am pro entertainment. <laughs> I want. I want what I want, and uh, perhaps I'm, you know, juvenile and selfish. But uh, I am what I am. Uh, Damien continues. You would have to be an idiot to give an interesting new character to Marvel. They might end up being in one of the most watched movies of all time, and you earn almost nothing. And yes, you're 100 percent right. You are 100% right, I cannot argue that at all Because uh, in my perfect world, there wouldn't be comic book movies anymore There would just be comics So, I mean, I'm the wrong guy to ask But, no, you're 100% right Uh, Damien wraps up with By the way, you can let Evan know that the UK is protected from Selkies By an organized system of Selkie defense classes Which are a key element of our schooling Druids are far easier. We just give them the occasional barrel of mead and then ignore the resulting public nudity. So now we know. See, I I didn't just say veg today a bunch of times. I'm actually learning more about the world from our mailbag segment. So thank you so, so much, Damien, for uh, your thoughts and uh, inspiring my rambling, you know, skin-in-the-game rant. So thank you so, so much. Now, if anyone out there would like to get a hold of me, and if I didn't turn everybody off with my comments, uh, please feel free to reach out to me. I'm available on Twitter at Ace Comics and uh, via email at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. Also, xlabs.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can talk to us on Facebook at 90sxmen, and you can listen to the entire Chris and Reggie audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Uh, we'll wrap it up right here. One giant thank you to everyone for deciding to spend your day, or at least you know half hour of your day with me today. I really, really appreciate it. And until next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya.
Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 91 of X Last. And, uh, well, you guys don't know this, but I do. Uh, this is a late night edition of X Lapsed. Uh, it's just been one of those days. Uh, it's, uh, you know, we're going into the end of the year here, which offers us that, that weird double edged sword where, uh, we're kind of invited or demanded to reflect and think about everything you wanted to get done in the uh, previous, you know, 12 months. And if you're a digital pack rat like me, you've got a lot of evidence of the stuff you did and didn't do. So uh, I've got spent a lot of the day looking over some old scripts and partial scripts and partial projects, and uh, yeah, it's uh, just been one of those days. Um, also, uh, weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, that email address, I'm locked out. Uh, I don't have access to it anymore, and I'm not sure when I will have access to it. Uh, I had to download a uh, like a browser app or a browser, I don't know, add-on, whatever they call it for Chrome uh, for school, and it wouldn't work. So one of the things they tell you to try to do is, you know, clear your history, you know, clear everything out, clear your cookies, your cache, whatever it is, and. Uh, I accidentally lost the password to the Weird Comics History uh, email box. And when I went to retrieve it, Google did that thing where it's like, uh, hey, we'll, you know, we'll text you, a, uh, you know, some sort of a code to your phone so you can say that you're you. And I figured that that's probably the best way to do this. But unfortunately, it's not my phone number. Um, it was Reggie's phone number, which was kind of like kicking me while I was down. So... No access to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com for the moment. Uh, there were a handful of emails that I hadn't yet gotten to that were in there, so if you sent me emails to that address in the past few days, please forward those emails to 90sxmen at gmail.com. 90sxmen, no hyphen, at gmail.com. So uh, that'll be the email address we're going to go with for at least the next little while until I... Until Google takes their 120 hours or whatever it's going to be before they let me know whether or not I'm going to ever have access to that account again. So, with that out of the way, yes, this is a late night edition of X Lapsed, and here we're still on the path to X of Tens. I threw a little hashtag in our, on our cover art, hashtag X of Tens, so if anybody wants to follow along or comment on these stories, please feel free to use that one. And uh, if we look at the cover here, it looks like we're in for a knockdown, drag-out fight between Colossus and Omega Red, possibly paying off that info page from an issue or two back, which uh, I wasn't looking forward to, and I guess that's probably a good thing, because it's not going to happen in this book. Um, now, the book we're covering is X-Force, Volume 6, Number 11, at an October 2020 cover date. Story is called Red Dawn, written by Benjamin Percy, with art by Basil Dua. Basil Dua. I'll get it one of these days. Colors, Goro EFX. Letters, VCs, Joe Caramagna. Designs, Tom Muller. Head of X is Hickman. Edits, Robinson White-Zabalski. Cover price, $3.99. Went on sale August 12th, 2020. Let's get right on in here. Now, we open 
in the healing gardens of Krakoa, where Cecilia Reyes, Beast, and Sage are looking over some corpses of Russian bad guys. Because, of course, Russian bad guys. And I know it's been a minute since we covered an issue of X-Force here on the show, but even still, I feel like we're missing something. Like, are we maybe continuing out of the pale girl storyline from Wolverine, not X-Force? I mean, last thing we wrapped up in X-Force was the Terra Verde deal, right? As far as I know, uh, that, the Terra Verde deal, was one of the very few stories in the Dawn of X era that didn't just use Russians as villains, so I'm surprised to see Russians here. I figure this might be a, one of those spots where an editorial footnote might have helped. I, I know both books are written by Percy, right? And if you're listening to this show, you probably know that both X-Force and Wolverine are bit, written by Percy as well. If you're a more casual fan, however, what the hell are you going to do? You're going to be completely lost. Which I guess is the uh, the silver lining is that Marvel's done gone out of their way for the last two decades to kill off the very notion of a casual comics fan, so we probably don't have very many people to worry about. Anyway, back to the issue. Cecilia is a bit nervous about con- conducting a mass autopsy, because the last time they had done one, the bodies were all rigged with explosives. And she's talking about that weird Reva's Wetworks crew from way back in the first couple of issues of this volume. I don't remember their bodies being rigged. Um, It's very likely it was. It's been a long, long time. So, if so, great use of continuity. If not, okay. Anyway, Cecilia draws her scalpel and then cuts into the first corpse, which reveals a tiny humanoid figure, which springs from the corpse and then stabs her in the throat. So Cecilia Reyes is now dead. Though, in the sage words of Sage, quote, we can always bring her back. <sighs> Beast comments that this threat is akin to literal Russian nesting dolls, which I'll concede is pretty clever. Though, if I were to guess and project, I'd have to suggest that uh, Percy probably came up with the punchline before the joke and then wrote everything to that payoff. Beast also comments that uh, it would appear as though the Russians have figured out a way to bring themselves back from death, not unlike the mutants of Krakoa. And with that, the half-dozen or so other Russian corpses in the room start to wriggle and skelch as little red humanoids pop out of them. Let's do a roll call. Beast, Sage... Dead Cecilia Reyes, Colossus, and Domino. Double-page spread of creds here. Then we pick back up in the Savage Land, which is uh, one of my least favorite lands on Marvel Earth. Colossus is here farming some miracle meds, uh, like literally dragging a plow behind him. He's visited by Domino, who'd really like to speak with him. But he's not all that interested. In fact, after everything he's experienced of late, he suggests that he might just devote his life back to farming altogether. Domino attempts to reason with him. However, she's interrupted by the arrival of a purple-skinned blonde mutant named Kayla, who seems to have taken a liking to Peter. Info page. It's a story about a Russian writer. Um, It's pretty well written, but doesn't do a whole heck of a lot for me. Back to comics, and we are at the point at Krakoa. Now, Beast is trying to get in contact with Sage, even though when we last saw them, they were literally standing right next to one another. Uh, we see that one of the Russian nesters has accessed a computer terminal and appears to be trying to get a location on Professor X. Shift scenes back to the Savage Land. Colossus notes that the Madroxes are running toward the gateway, which suggests that 
you know, something might be up. It also suggests that the mutants of Krakoa are using Madrox dupes as uh, manual laborers. So, how about that? At least he's not using his spare body parts to distract zombies. I guess that's a step up, right? Ugh. Okay, now, many Madroxes are attacked upon trying to enter the gateway, and so Colossus armors up, and he rushes in himself. What he finds on the other side is basically a full-blown war between the X-Men and whatever these Rus- Russian nesters are. And they look like monsters at this point. Uh, they kinda... Their skin kinda resembles Domino's weird Krakoa cannon that Forge gave her back in the day. Speaking of which... Domino is going to go in guns blazing against these monsters here. And she's going to complain that she doesn't have enough ammo to take them down. To which, I gotta ask, why isn't she wearing that gross Krakoa cannon? It's there, right? Anyway, Beast warns that this offensive might just be a diversion. And, uh, well, he's absolutely right. Because elsewhere, Black Tom rushes to the Professor to inform him that the island is under attack. He takes Charles into some veg-like panic room for safekeeping. We see, however, in the tall grass that one of the Russian nesters is hiding and biding its time. Then, with Tom and Chuck out of the way, the nester heads inside wherever the professor was hanging out and swipes the Cerebro sword. Now, that's the sword that Magneto created out of the busted Cerebro helmet that Xavier was wearing when he had his brains blown out back in issue number one. And I gotta figure, we are on the path to Exaten, so... I suppose it's time to put some swords in in hands, right? Hmm. From here we go to an info page, and it's more on that Russian writer. And uh, there's a bit where it's written in Cyrillic, which we have seen a number of times in this book of late. And we've theorized, and I think we're going to find out uh, how that's going to play out at the very end of this issue. Now back to comics, and Domino is still fighting off some nesters. She questions how many times these things are going to reveal smaller humanoids, as with as it would seem with each death, another emerges. And so she figures, screw it all, and just starts tossing grenades. Colossus then takes a big nester, a big monstrous one, and throws it into the sun? Well, he throws them really far. We don't see it land, but still, we probably shouldn't assume that it's dead. But it's good enough for Domino and Beast. Now, with the job done, Colossus heads back to the Savage Land, says, you know, I'm, I'm still not back. So, there you go. Elsewhere, Phoebe Cuckoo and Quentin Choir are making out in a bush. They part company, and Quentin appears to be over the moon in love. Just then, stop me if you heard this one before, he is stabbed in the heart by the Cerebro Sword. You get it? Quentin dies in every issue. This, this is funny, right? 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 Come on, laugh, damn it. Come on, this is funny. No, no, it's not. Stop this. Ah, oh, boy. A dying choir is then drop-kicked through a nearby gateway by that tiny Russian nester. He emerges out the other side at the feet of Mikhail Rasputin. Mikhail re- removes the Cerebro sword out of Quentin's corpse, and it would appear that we're off to the races. That's X-Force number 11. Next time, we will be talking about Excalibur number 11, which uh, does not have a path to X of Ten's little tab on it. We're still in other world there. We're still in other world. But, yeah, we'll talk about that next time. Now, let's talk about this one. First thing right off the bat, what an awesome Colossus vs. Omega Red fight in this issue, huh? Yeah, I, I don't even know. Um... 
And I'm sorry, my main takeaway from this issue is uh, is totally being informed by the sour taste I have left in my mouth from the ending gag and the overused gimmick of this book, killing Quentin Choir, or really any character, for hu- comedic effect? Stop it. This isn't funny. I think we're supposed to be, like, uproariously laughing at this. Like, these scenes of Quentin dying are like Kramer bursting into Jerry's apartment on Seinfeld. We're, like, we're like supposed to laugh and applaud, right? Only it's not funny, and it never was. Who, who were they writing this for? Certainly not X-Men fans. I mean, sure, Quentin is a little jerk. That's kind of his entire character. But this is just dumb. I did see an upcoming cover for X-Force from an issue of Marvel Previews, and it has Quentin Quire on it wearing a t-shirt that says something along the lines of, like, I was killed or I died a hundred times and all I got was this stupid t-shirt. Which tells me that this gimmick isn't dying anytime soon, and that sucks because... This isn't funny. This really isn't funny. We talk a lot about how humor doesn't land all the time in these Dawn of X books. This is another case of it not. And I mean, we've also talked a lot, probably too much, about the devaluing of death in these books. And while death doesn't carry the same sort of weight as it had in the past, can we at least treat it with a tiny bit of respect? I mean, even Cecilia Ray is... She dies early in this issue. I don't know that she's ever died before. This might be her first actual death. And it was met with a shrug and a, oh, well, we'll bring her back. No big deal. That's not good. That's not good writing. That's not good storytelling. That's just not good world building. That's not good. Hopefully our eventual destination will make these more irritating parts of the journey seem worthwhile in hindsight. I'm not holding my breath. What else we got here? The Russian nesting dolls, which is pretty clever, as I mentioned. Um, I still wonder, though, where exactly on the doll did the Russians touch our Dawn of X creative teams? It feels like like not only are we listening to the same record over and over, but it's stuck skipping on the same lyric. I mean, can we maybe get different threats, different villains? Hmm? Hopefully X of Tens and Beyond will deliver us some more interesting threats. I mean, they couldn't be any worse, right? Um, the Colossus and Domino scene felt kind of tacked on. Like, it didn't get near as much play as I would have wanted it to. Especially considering it was some of the strongest stuff in this entire volume a couple issues back. I'm sure we'll be getting more out of Colossus, though, considering his weirdo brother looks to be the big bad for the next little while anyway. Uh, the art was nice. Uh, suitably gory, given the nesting doll gimmick. Um... Overall, though, this issue felt like a means to an end. Like, we had to get the Cerebro Sword into Mikhail's hands, and, uh, well, it's exactly what they did. Editorial footnotes would have been keen in the opening pages, considering we're picking up from a storyline in a whole other book without warning. I'm really not sure what editors do nowadays. But really, there should have been something here to tell us that we were picking up from Wolverine Solo, um, and which issues that folks should check out if they're interested in checking it out. Though, maybe they were doing the readers a kindness and not telling them where to find it, since that story wasn't all that great to begin with. Uh, There is something on, like, the the roll call page that says, Wolverine and the Marauders, uh, you know, Fort Russians. It's like, but where? I mean, we know. I know. If you're listening, you probably know. But somebody just going into a comic store actually, you know, got bonked on the head and fell through a comic shop door and decided to buy something? 
they're not going to have the first foggiest idea where to where to follow their stories. And I mean, it's even confusing for us. So what sort of hope would a brand new comic fan have going into this cold? But uh, that was X-Force number 11. Don't have a whole heck of a lot more to say about it. It's uh, Like I said, it was a means to an end. And uh, probably more than a little over-reliant on some overused gimmicks. So that's that. Before we get out of here, let's hop into the mailbag here. And uh, again, if anybody wants to write in 90sxmen at gmail.com for, for the next little while. We're going to start with Damien. He's talking about Empire colon X-Men number three. He says, I didn't mind this issue. I know I'm damning with faint praise, but it was a perfectly fine action adventure. I might feel differently had I spent $5 on it. And I probably spent $2.50 on it. I want to say that the Empire cash-ins were all 50% off at DCBS. I still feel ripped off. <laughs> Maybe this is a uh, this is a Marvel Unlimited. You have to read it there to, to get anything out of it sort of a situation. Uh, Damien continues, I particularly love the Beast scene. Whoever wrote that part of the story is clearly not reading X-Force. I'm slightly worried that when Ben Percy reads this issue, he'll feel the need to write a scene where Beast has stolen some piece of science from horticulture during this issue. And I mean, it's funny you say that because, as you know by now, that's pretty much exactly what happens in the very next issue. Um, But uh, like I said during our Empire discussions, I was so surprised, pleasantly surprised, by the Beast scenes because... uh, I mean, I stand by that this was probably the best use of the character in well over a decade. It felt like a happier and less evil Hank McCoy. But, and, I mean, that's not a fellow we've seen in way too long in the, uh, in the books these days. Damien continues. By the way, it's Hox, Pox, Docs, Rocks, as the new era is the reign of X. Following from X of Tens, there's a possibility that it might actually be Reign of Ten, but I completely refuse to entertain that notion. I swear Hickman is going to try to convince us that we've been reading the Ten Men for decades. And, oh man, I hope it's not Reign of Ten, but I can—I bet it will be. Um, it's like Hickman can't, still can't get over how Grant Morrison made it so Weapon X was actually Weapon Ten, and now he's making it so, like, every single use of the letter X over the past 60 years was actually just a Roman numeral 10. And, I mean, it was clever when Morrison did it. But this just feels forced, which feels like a criticism I levy at a lot of current year writers, especially those in Grant Morrison's shadow. I mean, you're not reinventing the wheel. You're not rewriting the language of comics if all you're doing is amplifying what the writers who came before you already did. Uh, that's something we talked about a lot on our Young Animal Gatherums with uh, Doom Patrol, because uh, Gerard Way, the uh, lead singer of My Chemical Romance, and uh, I guess he does comics when he feels like it, uh, he was basically a Grant Morrison tribute band. Everything was was Morrison amped to, uh, to, to 11, and it missed so much of the charm in Morrison's work by just repeatedly just like punching you in the face with the fact that hey this is like morrison this is like morrison and uh it's like just stop (laughs) please just stop uh damien continues you talk about the rest of the marvel universe and crossovers in general really brings up a lot of my issues with comics i love comics and i'm not averse to crossovers i discovered u.s marvel with the mutant massacre and dc with millennium and i bought every issue i could get my hands on but back then comics were 40 pence each 
I could buy you the entire Mutant Massacre for £4.80. I think that's how you say that. Which is less than you spend on one issue of Empire X-Men. Millennium was much bigger cost was a much bigger cost at £18 for 45 issues. This four-part series is more expensive than that. Expecting readers to buy all the crossovers is ultimately going to contract your readership because many people will not be able to spend the 200 plus pound necessary to follow the line-wide crossover. Numerous times over the years I've dropped books because they're in perpetual crossover and I was getting an incomplete story. At present, I'm only buying X books from Marvel and I'm not getting all of them. Although I did buy all of X of 10s. I buy nothing from DC. I'm more likely to drop a book or skip an issue if it, if it has a tie-in to a crossover I don't like. I loved X of 10s, but I imagine there were people who hated it. During X of 10s, Marauders published three issues, which only included one character from the Marauders cast, Storm. I imagine the people who weren't into X of 10s will have dropped Marauders in anger, and I'd understand why. That's a great point, and um, it reminds me of that story of why Peter David left X-Factor. Uh, shortly after Executioner's Song back in the early 90s. I want to say it was X-Factor number 83. It's got a uh, it's got a very striking cover. It's uh, almost completely black with uh, Bishop, Wolverine, and Cable on it. And that entire issue, I want to say, featured zero members from the actual X-Factor cast. It was just Bishop, Wolverine, and Cable. I couldn't imagine how folks who didn't read the entire line must have felt about that. Because I'm sure there had to have been at least a handful of X-Factor-only readers out there. Just as I'm sure there's probably at least a handful of Marauders-only readers nowadays. I've talked to some people who have said, Marauders is my book. That's my only X-book. Because it's the only one they like. So I'm sure there are people out there who were probably very irritated. And I think the industry... They're so over-reliant on exploiting us and uh, exploiting the, the addicted, right, and the compulsive like, like myself, where they don't realize how easy a habit this is to kick for normal people, right, for people who are more mentally balanced than I. Uh, something we talked about in a Weird Comics History episode where we discussed the fifth week was talking about the... the the habitual buyer, you know, someone who goes to the comic shop every week because they go to the comic shop every week and then might pick up a couple issues. But on the fifth week, if they go and Marvel didn't put anything out and DC didn't put anything out and they didn't get their Spider-Man or their Superman or their Batman comic that week, it's pretty easy for them to realize, hey, maybe I don't need this in my life. You know, I, I didn't get it last week and I didn't miss it. So it's like... Maybe take better care of the, uh, the the people who are left. Uh, having none of the Marauders cast barring Storm in those issues, that's very um, it's very wrong-headed, but it's also very Marvel. It's it stinks. Now the uh, the endless crossovers was actually one of the reasons why I've dropped a lot of my Marvel pull list. Um, I've long said that I used to be the the one of everything Marvel zombie. Every single thing with a Marvel logo on it. I didn't care if it was reprints. I didn't care if it was uh, X-Men animated series manga tie-ins. I, I didn't care about any of that. If it said Marvel, I was buying it. But nowadays, there's just no way to justify such an unnecessary expense. I mean, I've dropped complete families of books because there was just no way to do it. 
and it and you know when you think about it it's not as though any of these crossovers will actually hold up right these aren't seminal stories being told these are just the quarterly you know blockbuster popcorn comics right they're not going to hold up and hell i mean a year or two down the line we're going to be told like hey everything we thought we knew about that crossover you all dropped 300 dollars on a couple of years ago was wrong anyway right i mean it's it's just a marvel method <laughs> and it sucks but uh i'm too weak to to stop supporting it so I guess I'm, you know, I'm part of the problem, <laughs> so it is what it is. But uh, thank you so much for uh, sharing your thoughts there, Damien. Next, uh, Andrew Franklin is talking about X-Factor number one. He says, I was so certain I was going to hate this comic. I thought this was going to be 100% everything I dislike about modern Marvel comics. Snarky quips, everyone speaking like a 20-something on the internet, meta-references, oh-so-wacky gags like Amazing Baby, tonal whiplash between ironic irreverence and emotionally overwrought seriousness. And while those elements are there, I didn't hate it. By the end of the book, I actually quite liked it, which was a huge surprise. And yeah, this was a pretty good issue. I can't say that it lived up to the hype that I'd given it, um, but I did have a good time with it. I was kind of walking the line with this one because I'd heard so many good things about it, so I was kind of psyched. But I also expected irreverence and millennial humor, and like you said, there is a bit of that, but certainly not to the extent that I had braced for. I was expecting it to be like... I can't even think of a millennial reference to (laughs) to say, but I was expecting it to be a difficult read, a cringy read, but uh, it was not. It was actually quite good. Uh, Andrew continues, B-list X-Men are my sweet spot, so I really like the cast. Well, those I'm familiar with. Polaris and Rachel Summers have long been favorites of mine. I'm not really sure what their characters are like nowadays, and this issue didn't do a great job of really showing them to me since everyone kind of had the same voice. The little we did get, like Polaris talking to Magneto, I did like. Maybe after this setup issue, we'll have more time for characterization. And I hope so, too. Uh, This was a fine bringing the team together sort of outing, and I'm guessing characterization will follow. Uh... As a matter of fact, I'd almost bet money that before long we'll get an issue where they all go to visit Doc Samson for therapy, because of course they will. Um, Andrew continues, I'm really, I really enjoyed the focus on North Star. I'm not sure how prominent he's been since Eve of Destruction, the last time I remember seeing him, but I always felt he and Aurora would make solid B-list X-Men. We shouldn't hold their Alpha Flight membership against them. Him being made team leader was a nice surprise. It certainly made me interested to keep reading. And yeah, Northstar has kind of been in and out of the X-Books since uh, Eva Destruction. Uh, if Eva Destruction is what I'm thinking of, that was the temporary Pauli Prevezano team that uh, Gene put together, right? I think that's the one. Now, he would figure, uh, Northstar that is, he would figure somewhat prominently, uh, actually unfortunately prominently, during the Chuck Austin run. Uh, he was basically there to... Uh, be very, very gay. Um, And I was recently revisiting, uh, there's a fellow named Paul O'Brien, who, if you're an X-Men fan, you should probably check out some of his writing here. Uh, He used to do, or he probably still does, the X-Axis, where he reviews basically every X-Men book and has done so for well over 20 years at this point. And I was revisiting his uh, X-Axis archives, uh, checking out his X-Men year in review pieces from earlier, you know, turn of the century. 
it's something I do probably probably every end of the year. It's one of those rituals I have where I just, you know, check back in on some things. And I happened across his look at Uncanny X-Men from 2002. And in his piece, he summed up the year as follows. Quote, what happened in 2002? The X-Core storyline, Nightcrawler's crisis of religious faith, the Vanisher's drug-dealing empire is destroyed, Black Tom Cassidy and the Juggernaut in Scotland, Annie Gazikhanian arrives at the mansion, North Star joins, and boy is he gay. Because that was the only characterization he got. I mean, these were very different times, of course, but uh, poor North Star just couldn't catch a break. He was only relevant in that book because he was gay, and Chuck Austin never let anyone forget that. Um, while I'm talking about the X-axis, uh, I recommend any of Paul O'Brien's X-Men discussions to anyone listening. Um, I haven't read his current year stuff because I don't want to accidentally spoil myself on anything, but I can't say enough good things about his archives. Um, I believe he's now at like House to Astonish. I think that's the show that he's on, but, uh... He's got a ton, a, a, a huge catalog of, uh, of excellent X-Men reviews. It's really, really good stuff. He's the guy who wrote about Mutant X, and uh, those reviews about the later issues of Mutant X, the Howard Mackey book featuring Havoc, if you haven't read those, it, it's good stuff. Definitely something worth checking out. But back to Northstar, uh, he'd later be part of the Astonishing cast post-Joss Whedon. There, he would be rushed into a wedding storyline so that Marvel could beat DC to doing it. And uh, they could also get Whoopi Goldberg to hold the the comic up on The View. Basically it. Uh, Andrew continues. The other team members I know nothing about. Prodigy and iBoy seem useful in the CSI Krakoa book. I liked how the team got to showcase all their abilities during this issue. It brought me back to more Tory Mondays and how you and Chris Bailey would highlight when the Strike Force did that. Just like in that book, I thought it was well illustrated why these characters make a good team, as well as giving a very basic introduction to people like me who were reading some of these characters for the very first time. This was really good first issue fundamentals. And yeah, the uh, it's funny, the Moratori powers in tandem gimmick was exactly what popped in my head when I was reading this. And you're right, this is a great way to introduce these lesser known and potentially completely unknown to some to to some readers, you know, these characters. All but Dakin or Dakin, because uh dang, they they just wouldn't stop beating the dust out of that rug. That was a little much. A little a little unsubtle. Uh, Andrew continues. I thought the art was a perfect fit for this book. I don't think this look would go as well with the violence of X-Force, and if a Lionel Francis you were drawing this, it would look far too serious for the script to work. I think the art here straddles the line, and it needs to, to make the jokiness work while also looking good for the more serious scenes. This look really helped sell the book to me. It should also be mentioned that this was a 39-page book, which probably did a lot to make this issue read so well. And yeah, this artist... um, While he's not my favorite, uh, I will definitely say he's a better fit here than anywhere I've seen him before. I I was not taken out of the story by his work, where in previous books, I want to say he was on FF uh, when when Hickman was on it, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, when he split off, I think either Fantastic Four was canceled or was running concurrently with FF. Uh, This is where post, you know, spoiler alert, Johnny Storm's death and Spider-Man joined up. I want to say Baldion was artist late in that run, and I did not care for it. Uh, but here, it's perfectly fine. Perfectly fine. 
Uh, Andrew continues. I was very surprised at how much I enjoyed X-Factor number one. I'm very much looking forward to seeing how the rest of this series goes. I'm also surprised at just how much I enjoy these Wave 2 books. Well, all except Wolverine. <laughs> Hopefully that enjoyment lasts. And yeah, Wave 2 has been quite the pleasant surprise. Um, I really wasn't sure what to expect out of books like Cable and Hellions. You know, um, I had a pretty good idea what we'd be getting out of Wolverine. And, well, yeah, that's exactly what we wound up getting. But everything else has been a very pleasant surprise. And I'm happy to say uh, 3 out of 4 ain't bad, right? So that's a, that's a good thing. Uh, Andrew wraps up with, It's literally taken me a week to get this email out, so if you read this before Christmas, have a Merry Christmas and a Happy Birthday. And until there's a gritty reboot of Kids Incorporated, make mine X-lapsed. Well, I did get this before Christmas and before my birthday, so thank you so, so much. And I hope everyone had a, uh, had a wonderful Christmas as well. Uh, mine was different than usual, but uh, very, very nice, very enjoyable, and uh, hated to see it end. Still do. Uh, it's... Probably one of the reasons it's been such a hard few days. It's uh, you get that post-holiday blues sort of setting in, and uh, this year, I think I think so many of us, considering the rough year we had, I think we put a lot of uh, a lot of our hopes in the holiday season as a distraction or just a happy place, and uh, it definitely delivered for me. But uh, it makes the days after it kind of rough because the the lows kind of mirror the highs so as great as everything was now it's now it's not (laughs) and it's different but uh thank you so so much and uh that's where we'll leave it for today still got a few messages in the hopper that hopefully if uh if anybody listening wrote those please forward them to that other email address 90sxmen at gmail.com so i can actually uh share them on the program here um I guess with that said, hey, if you'd like to write in, you could do so. You could find me at uh, Ace Comics on Twitter or at 90sxmen at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. We also have xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You could chat with us about all sorts of stuff over on Facebook at 90sxmen. And you could check out the entire audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. That'll do it for today. I want to thank everyone so, so much for hanging out and sharing your time. And as always, I will talk to you all again real soon. See ya. Find yourself in another part of the world.
Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 105 of X Lapsed. And uh, if you stand next to me and you look toward the horizon, you'll see something. You're going to see Exatens. And if you were to look down, you'll see that we're on a path. On a path straight to the horizon here. The path to X of Tens. And, you know, these path two books have been, I don't know, kind of middling, kind of uh, nebulous in how much they're actually informing the mass crossover event that we're about to hit and hit hard. So we'll see how this one goes. We're going to be talking about an issue of X-Force here that picks up from... Well, the last issue of X-Force, which was also branded as being part of the path to X of Tens. So without any further ado, let's get right into it here. This is X-Force, Volume 6, Number 12, which had a November 2020 cover date. The story is called The Cerebro Sword. Written by Benjamin Percy with art by Oscar Bazaldois. One of those. Colors, Guru EFX, letters, VCs, Joe Caramagna, designs are Tom Muller, head of X is Hickman, edits, Robinson, Amaro, White, Basso, Sobolski, cover price $3.99, and this issue went on sale 9-9 of 2020. Now we pick up basically right where we left off here, Mikhail Rasputin, Colossus and Magic's brother, he's got the Cerebro Sword, and also a dying Quentin choir laying at his feet, because Quentin dies all the time. Quentin, still alive now, he asks why Mikhail would choose his country, Russia, over his people, the mutants. To which Mikhail proclaims that he is Russia. Okay, then. He decides to drag Quentin's just-about-to-die body along with him to wherever he's going, and uh, we'll find out in just a little bit. First, let's do a roll call. Beast, Sage, Cecilia Reyes, who I don't think we see in this issue, Colossus, Domino, Kid Omega, and Mikhail Rasputin. From here, a double-page spread of creds, then back to comics. And we're at the point with Beast and Sage. Sage had been KO'd or something, I can't remember, in the last issue. Whatever the case, she's a bit out of it. And so Beast hands over this, like, gross, organic Krakoan helmet to help her, you know, keep her head straight. Kind of like that thing that Domino has, that gun that adapts to whatever. It's like that weird, organic nastiness. So Sage puts the helmet on, does her thing, and whatever whatever it is that her thing is, and she's quickly able to deduce the source of this latest threat. And it's Mikhail. Duh. From here, we shift scenes back to the uh, Court of Owls. It's been a while since we've seen these geeks. Uh, This is, of course, if you're listening, you know this is Zeno or Zeno. Uh, They're the ones behind making all those domino dupes earlier in this very volume. They're having their normal blustery meeting, which is interrupted by the arrival of Mikhail Rasputin. Uh, Mikhail and one of the heavies of Zeno get into it right away. Jump back to Krakoa, where Beast and Black Tom are doing a little bit of, I don't know, ethnic profiling? You see, Mikhail Rasputin is Russian, right? But he's not the only Russian mutant that they know, so uh, it's time to chat some more of them up. Starting with Omega Red, who... um, hmm, I thought he was busy hanging out with Dracula or something. 
I mean, in fairness, it's not as though Ben Percy is writing both of those books. Oh, oh, wait a minute. That's right, he is. Anyway, Black Tom, Black Tom's some Krakoan vines into tangling up poor innocent Arcady. And I suppose we're heading for an inquisition of sorts. But first, back to Zeno, Zeno, whatever. Mikhail and the Heavy keep fighting, and he makes it clear to them that he sees Krakoa as an enemy, and so they've got that in common. After some more tussling, Mikhail draws the Cerebro sword and holds it at the Zeno leader's throat. His name escapes me right now, and uh, frankly, he's not interesting enough to do a whole lot of research on, so we'll just call him the Zeno leader for the moment. We shift scenes over to the Savage Land. There we see Colossus and his new friend Kayla. They're talking about farming and whatnot and uh, boredom and how Colossus thinks that boredom, you know, when his li- when a life is as chaotic as his normally is, boredom is something of a relief, something to look forward to, something to aspire towards. Well, suddenly, the boredom is shattered because Beast arrives, also the rest of X-Force. Now, they're here to interrogate Colossus about his potential ties to Russia and his brother Mikhail, who apparently are one and the same. Makes me wonder, are they going to round up magic, too? I mean, probably not, since she's featured in about 80% of these Dawn of X books. Not that we're all that worried about maintaining the linear integrity of the Shared X universe at this point, but what are you going to do? Now, Colossus appears to be going willingly. He's fine with it. He's like... Yeah, sure, I'll go with you. Well, I'll answer some questions. But his new friend Kayla ain't having it. She uses her hydro powers to blast X-Force until Peter asks her to stand down. Oh, and Domino uh, draws her pistol and holds it up to Kayla's forehead. Which, uh, tell you what, I mean, you know, when you think about things like being heroic, sometimes you don't know it till you see it, right? And that's, you know, holding a pistol up to a unarmed person's head Nothing screams hero like that, right? Now, Beast asks, as a favor to him, if Peter would mind uh, wearing handcuffs back to Krakoa. Yeah, really, he wants Peter cuffed as they walk through the gateway here. Peter's fine with it. He is like, he seems completely defeated, dejected. He just doesn't appear to care about a whole lot at the moment. Now, he's walked through the gateway, and then upon arrival on Krakoa, he is faced with, like, several dozen mutants, including Outlaw from Agent X. Somebody in the X office really seems to have, a f- have fond memories of Agent friggin' X. And, I mean, it wasn't that good. Uh-huh. From here, an info page. And it's a long one, taken from Beast's logbook. Something about traitors that uh, I couldn't get through without glazing over. These are very long. Back to comics. And Wolverine, who was part of this mission, is really ticked off at the show that Beast is putting on here, right? He's basically trotting their friend Peter out in front of all these mutants. You know, guilty until proven innocent at this point. Wolverine rightly socks Beast in the gut and then chases the audience away with his claws drawn. We'll talk more about that in a bit. Shift scenes over to Zeno. Mikhail and the big bad chat for a bit as they walk through the body shop thing. It's You remember what happened with Domino, right? What we got here is a bunch of fluid-filled canisters, each containing a body, nothing we haven't seen before. Now, Mikhail knows what Zeno was able to do with just a little bit of Domino, and he wonders what they might be able to accomplish if they could do the same thing with Kid Omega. And, uh, I mean, shouldn't Zeno, like, already want to do that sort of thing? Like, like they shouldn't need this sort of prompting, is what I'm trying to say. Are they really this stupid? They never thought, like... 
Like Zeno standing there, hey, you know, if duping Domino worked so well, and she's just a, like a, an assassin with luck powers, why not try doing the same thing with an Omega-level mutant? Because, as luck would have it, there just so happens to be an Omega-level mutant who dies every 15 minutes, right? Oh well. Let's jump back to Krakoa for the wrap-up. Now, Wolverine has invited Jean Grey to the point to ask her for some help. Now, even though she quit X-Force, they still need her for this very special exercise. They need her to try and get into the heads of Colossus and Omega Red to see what they know. Maybe they'll find out about that pesky Dracula while she's in there. But that's it for comics. We do have another very long info page, which is signed in Russian, and I'm bored with this, so I'm not going to read it. That is X-Force number 12. Next episode... It's one of our X of Tens Part Zeros, a prelude. It's Excalibur number 12. But let's talk about uh, well, what we got here, huh? I gotta say, this was pretty weak. I mean, stuff happened, right? But was it the kind of stuff we really want to see happen? Do we want to see Beast profiling Russian characters to round up in question? Especially when we're including one of his longest tenured teammates and... I would figure his one of his closest friends in the team. Is that really where we are now? And like nobody thinks to second guess Beast's methods here. Now I didn't go through specific names for that group shot. You know when they were walked back through from the Savage Land to Krakoa, I said there were dozens of mutants there. Let's parse that a little bit. Let's look at that group shot here. If uh, if you got it handy, great. If not, I'll walk you through it. Now, the group of Krakoans that Beast assembled in order to frog-march Colossus in front of included Storm, Banshee, Angel, Jubilee, Nightcrawler. You mean to tell me that none of these characters would have said, you know, Hey, Hank, this is uncool. Maybe don't do this. Also, you mean to tell me that Wolverine, with his friggin' claws out, chases this group of looky-loos away? Which, again, features some of his closest friends in Storm, Nightcrawler, and Juba Friggin' Lee. Who are these characters? Did Mark Miller ghostwrite this issue? Uh, Not a good look. And unfortunately for this outing, not a good book. Part of me wonders if this is like a none-too-subtle commentary on the CIA, considering, lest we forget, that X-Force is the mutant CIA, right? Now, do we even need to talk about how Omega Red is being prominently featured in two books during the same month, written by the same guy, and serving two very different purposes? Do we need to? Probably not, but we will. I mean, yeah, we can stick that Wolverine vampire story anywhere to make it fit, right? I mean, it's just a story. It could go wherever the hell we want it to go. But that doesn't excuse the laziness or the lack of editorial direction for using the same villain in two different books at the same time in the real world here. I mean, these are both books that are coming out within weeks of each other or days of each other. Did the Omega Red Dracula story have to happen now? Probably not, considering that the entire Wolverine book is basically one-off filler stories stretched out to as many issues as they can decompress them into. What are the editors even doing here? I don't get it. How about we talk about Domino pressing her pistol up to Kayla's head? Yeah, that seems in character, doesn't it? You know, some of these scenes feel like they're written by an 11-year-old who just discovered Watchmen and totally missed the point of it. 
Heroes shouldn't be pressing their guns into people's heads as a first resort. Especially when they're unharmed. And, I mean, this is just a young, lovesick mutant girl who wants the best for Colossus here, and we're gonna, we're gonna jam a gun into her head. Sure, I mean, it gives you an edgy few panels, because that's very important, but at the cost of characterization and emotional investment? My takeaways upon seeing this scene aren't, wow, Domino's a badass, which I feel like they were supposed to be. They're more, wow, Domino's an asshole, because at least in this scene, she is. I don't know what they're thinking with this stuff. Is the mission statement of this book, or this issue in particular, to make every character that we love as as awful as possible? Do they want us to not care about these characters? Is... Is this more evidence that there's some tweaking going on behind the scenes here? I just don't understand it because it's I'm coming away from this issue not liking anybody. And uh, I don't know if that's what you should be aspiring towards uh, when you're putting out a team book. To make every single character someone you don't care about. Someone you're not invested in. I really just don't know. Um, not a big fan of this one, which is a shame because... Uh, I mean, X-Force has been hit or miss with me personally since since Jump Street. The thing of it is, it's not just like a mild hit or, hit or miss book. It's like either a home run or this. You know, we get some really, really solid issues of this book. But then when they're not that great, in my opinion, of course, they're aggressively not great. And uh, I think that's kind of what we're, where we're at for this issue here, at least for me personally. And, I mean, your mileage may vary, and hopefully, for your sake, it does. But uh, I didn't come away with this from this one all that pleased. Um, part of me is hoping that I just misread a lot of this. But if it is what it appears to be, it's not a good look. It's not a good look, and it's a hard, it's a hard thing to walk back, right? If we're... If Beast really is rounding up people for questioning, I mean, what what does that even say? Uh, it's I, I don't know if this is just a role reversal with this, you know, things that the mutants had to deal with over the years. Now it's now they're evoking it on themselves. It's I don't know, just uh, not a fan of this issue, not a fan of this issue, and. Uh, that's all I got to say about it. So uh, let's head into the mailbag here before we cut out. Uh, we're going to hear from Damien first. He's talking about cable number three. He says, I have very little to say about this issue because it was fun. What more can you say? I do slightly worry that Jerry Duggan is having so much fun in the margins that we can lose sight of the overall picture. When the baby turned up at the end, I'd forgotten that that story started with a kidnap. But it's fun nonetheless. And you're right. You're right. I I also forgot that we were dealing with uh, what is her? I never remember her name. I know it's Pauly and uh, Stinger. I think it's Stinger. Yeah, their child was kidnapped by the Order of X, folks. And I I totally spaced it too. But I was having so much fun with everything else, I didn't even realize it. But uh, really fun issue. You're right. Dead on. This is a fun issue, and part of me wonders if. Maybe the COVID hiatus had something to do with um, the story kind of going the way it's going here. Because we had to get to Exit Tens, of course, so we kind of have to get the Space Knight stuff out of the way. And we see, as we get further into the series here with uh, Issue 4, 
the baby, uh, the baby subplot or the baby plot has become a subplot, kind of just something that's taken away in the background while everything else goes on ahead of it. But you're right, there is a risk there of, uh, as you put it, having having too much fun in the margins. But when the fun is is this much fun, I'm okay with that. <laughs> Damien continues. It was really interesting to hear you contrast my feedback on Marauders number eleven with Jesse's. Everything that Jesse said is correct. Kitty should have had a Jewish funeral, and it should have been attended by more people. There is no doubt. What is evident from Marauders 12 is that far more people attend Kitty's resurrection than her funeral. This could, in part, answer some of Jesse's gripes. The Krakoans clearly see resurrection as more important than death. Maybe we could understand people who have died and been resurrected not wanting to acknowledge death, but it's still weird that so few turned up. Still loving your podcast? Thanks again for all your hard work. Well, thank you so much. And uh, talking about Marauders number 11 here, a very, uh, very interesting issue. Like, the more I think about it, and the more I I go through feedback on that issue, it's, uh, I wasn't expecting it to be quite as divisive. And I also, I I was kind of expecting it just to be an issue that came and went, right? Because it starts with the funeral and it ends with Kitty coming back to life. It felt like a, a bridging sort of an issue where it's like, okay, we have some stuff we got to get done that we haven't gotten done yet, so let's get it done all right here. I figured it was just a bridging issue. Then again, I also thought Kitty was going to play a much bigger role in X of Tens, and I thought this was like, hey, we got to get we got to get her back to life. We got to do this. But uh, I didn't think it was going to be something that we'd actually stop and ponder on, and it's turned out to be uh, one of the more discussed uh, issues that we've covered here. And I, and I love it for that. I love it for that because there are so many different points of view to take with it. As far as Marauders number 12 is concerned, well, if you're listening to these in order, by now you've probably heard my thoughts on Marauders number 12 and uh, how I really didn't so much care for it. It wasn't quite what I was expecting it to be, and it kind of broke my heart not to like it as much as I felt I I would have going in. But you are also right. The Krakoans do see resurrection as a as more, I don't know, ceremonial is the word, but as something to acknowledge, uh, rather than death, because death is temporary in this world, and, uh, and I guess it's just kind of a bummer. Or, you know, the Agent X showed up, though, so at least there was that. But uh, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us, Damien. Uh, next up, we've got Jody Yarden, who's talking about X-Factor number three. He says, here's a comment on X-Factor number three. Too many times I mean to comment and then forget, because I usually listen at work. Well, don't worry about it. It's all good. It's all good. J- Jody continues. It wasn't until this very issue that I realized that my enjoyment of Mojo in the Mojoverse, shocking, I know, wasn't Mojo. It was different elements surrounding him. Longshot and Dazzler, even the X-Babies, them I like. Mojo? He sucks, and he sucks bad. And so does this story. (laughs) Hear, hear. (laughs) While I didn't didn't hate X-Factor number three quite as much as I did X-Factor number two, it's still very much a story that isn't for me. And we've talked about Mojo. Jody and I have talked about Mojo before in the Mojoverse, uh, talking about... Like that uh, two-part story right before Jim Lee left in 1992 or 1991, um, where where the the X Men go to Mojo the Mojo verse and we find out Dazzler is pregnant maybe and they think maybe it's Shatterstar but it's it's not it's even more complicated than that in fact but uh, 
But we've talked about that before, and uh, Mojo, Mojo's a weird character. Mojo is, I feel like he's a character that you either absolutely love or you absolutely hate. There's very little in between with, with a character like Mojo. And, uh, yeah, he, he, he kind of does, he does kind of suck. And, uh, yeah, the story does as well. But <laughs> thank you so much for sharing your thoughts there, Jody. Next up, our friend Evan Bevins with a theory. Now, he says... Back listening to the feedback from Empire X-Men number one, and I remembered another hot, well, lukewarm take that I somehow managed not to share with the group. But I won't deprive you any longer. Please note the sarcasm. I have no illusions here, but I do enjoy a forum to toss ideas out in. On the, in- on the inconsistency with X-23 and X-Men number five, sure, X-Factor number one says that the five need proof of death before they'll resurrect anyone, but does that apply if Professor X says he needs another X-23 for a special mission? If memory serves, and it seldom does, Sync was sent along for some redundancy. Sorry if that term gives you empire flashbacks. Uh, If Charles thought X-23 in Wolverine mindset was the best mutant for the job, he didn't want to wait for her to get out of her fallen angels Quanan is my Yoda funk. He could just make a new one. That extent of manipulation hasn't been so overt in anything I've read so far, but we've all been wondering exactly how far it goes. Another interesting theory. Another interesting theory here. We talked a bit about how issue five of X-Men, where we have, uh, what is it, Darwin, Sink, and X-23 going into the vault, where the children of the vault are, and they disappear. And we don't know if they live or die, but... That story ignores everything that happened throughout the entire run of Fallen Angels, where X-23 was very much, I don't want to say a sidekick to Quanan, but she joined up with Quanan to shed her Wolverine Jr. sort of vibe, right? She didn't want to be in Wolverine's shadow anymore. She wanted to be her own person. And here we are in X-Men Volume 5, Number 5, and she's back in her Wolverine duds. Is it the same character? Maybe not. Maybe Xavier did need a more Wolverine-y version instead of an emo Quinani version of X-23. We don't know. We don't know. And we don't know how deep the uh, the vaults under Krakoa go. <laughs> there might be different versions of different characters down there for all we know. I, and something tells me, I mean... Maybe not exactly this, but when we do get the reveal, I think it's going to just knock our socks off here. I don't know if it's going to be this, but it's going to be something. It's going to be something. I don't think it's going to be a whimper. I think it's going to be a boom, and uh, I don't know if we're going to be ready for it. But that is very, very interesting here. And to play on that a little bit more here, we've recently covered uh, the first arc of Hellions, right? Where Madeline Pryor... Goes through her existential crisis She doesn't know if she exists She just wants to be remembered And as she lay dying She just asks that Alex Havoc remembers her Remembers that she was real Remembers that she existed And then we jump ahead a few pages And we're at uh, we're back in Krakoa And the Quiet Council have to pass a ruling On whether or not they're going to Resurrect the Goblin Queen Madeline Pryor And they decide not to because she's a clone and a complication. We haven't seen X-23 die yet. But if she does, is she going to be given that same sort of treatment as Madeline Pryor? She is a clone, right? She's 
she's made of Wolverine genes, right? Is she a redundancy? Is she a an inconvenience? Or will they uh, will they be okay with that? And if so, because I mean everybody's going to die in this damn book. If that does happen, does Alex have a right to come back and be like, whoa, 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 you'll let Madeline die. You're not going to bring her back, but we'll bring back X-23. I think that could be a very interesting story, should it, you know, actually play out that way. But not saying it will, not saying it won't, but it's definitely interesting food for thought, at least at least in my opinion. But thank you so much for sharing that hot take with us, Evan. They're always so much fun to read, and they're always so much fun to think about and ponder. So thank you. Uh, we're going to wrap up with a message from our friend Jesse DeYoung, who I've been calling DeJong since, like, day one. So I apologize for mispronouncing your name every single time. I could barely pronounce my own name, so I apologize. Now, Jesse is talking about Marauders number 12. And he says, I've cooled off since issue 11, where I wanted to burn the comic. In Marauders number 12, for about half an issue, I felt like we had our kitty back. She looked and acted like Kitty Pride. Kurt gave her a necklace back. I was thrilled with the issue. Then she drank from a bottle, slapped on her pirate duds, and got knuckle tats again. I think I'm okay with where Kate is at. I don't like it, but I'm okay with it. This is the direction this creative team wants her to go, and eventually things will go back to the way they were. It's comics anyway, and if you can bet on anything, it's that things always go back to where they were. And yes, you're right. I'm, I'm sure the next head of X or... Plotmaster of X or whatever they're going to call the next, the next uh, curator of these uh, of this family of books will probably overcorrect if if overcorrects even the right way to put it here. But they'll they'll swing the pendulum back and we'll get something far more traditional because I don't think we can get much less traditional than what we're getting now. Uh, Jesse continues. Is this the first time we've seen Kitty kiss another woman? I know it's been floated for decades now that Kitty was gay, but this may be the first real time she's acted on it so blatantly. Not sure what to think about her seeing Rachel and Ileana at the party and her reactions to them both. Will there be a Twilight slash Hunger Games choice to be, to be made here? Or is she going to meet another woman named Patricia, since that name, Pete Peter, is what she's into as well? She really seemed to be affected when she turned back and saw Rachel was gone. And, you know, I, I don't know that I'd ever heard that rumor. Um, I mean, being on Usenet back in the 90s, you'd hear rumors about a lot of different mutants. You know, Iceman was a big one back then, Shatterstar and Richter. Don't know that I've ever heard Kitty's name bandied about, at least back then. Um, probably because she was uh, with Pete Wisdom at the time. And, uh, and I think anything that uh, Warren Ellis put to paper was considered... The, uh, the holiest of Gospels, so no one was going to speak out against that. But uh, I don't remember that, and I don't know where this might be headed. It, that is, of course, if it's headed anywhere at all. Jesse continues, Again, the first half of this book with the party and the horseback riding was a breath of fresh air. I didn't even mind the kiss with the tattoo artist at the end. I just don't like Kate being the baddest mother-shut-your-mouth pirate around. <laughs> but it feels like that's how every uh, mutant in Krakoa feels about themselves right now. This was an improvement over the last issue, even if she still is getting tats while wearing the Star of David. And, you know, that actually reminds me that I wanted to do a little bit of uh, research here. And I I try to stay away from comics commentary sites because I, I, I feel like they, they get pretty precious. But I did want to look into seeing if anyone had any sort of... Uh, had any sort of thoughts or problems with uh, Kitty getting tattooed here. For the reasons that we've covered 
throughout this run so far, I haven't actually done the research. I keep meaning to, and eventually I will, I, I hope. But I haven't done it yet, but I am interested in seeing more reactions to this. Uh, I haven't actually read anything from, like, the Jewish point of view, just to see where people are where people are on this. And I am very, very interested. Now, Jesse wraps up with, So until we get bat-lapsed, make mine x-lapsed. Just kidding, but I would still love a bat-lapsed. And, uh... Well, there might be there might be discussions, there might be uh, discussions going on right as we speak about uh, bat lapsed. Uh, <laughs> you know, you know me. I like spreading myself just as thin as I can. Um, if and when bat lapse does happen, it won't be daily. I can tell you that much. But uh, I'm interested. I am interested in catching up with because uh, it's funny because I actually stopped reading. The Batman books around the same time I stopped reading the X-Men books The only difference is I kept buying all of the Bat books Or both of the Bat books, I should say Batman and Detective Because for some reason I, I, I mean, I I guess I can hazard a guess as to some of the reasons But uh, for some reason The Batman books ever since uh, 2011 or so they're pretty spendy if you don't get them right off the racks. Those go up in price, those go up in value. I don't know why. <laughs> they're not like they're any less plentiful, and it seems like a we're, we're, we're pumping air into a bubble here with these bat books, but I never wanted to be in a position where I would have to spend, you know, upwards of $10 for an issue of Batman, right? And so I figure it's easier just to keep buying the things, even if uh, I don't have much interest in reading them at that moment. I always come back. That's my problem. I, I'll, I'll stay away for a little while, but I always come back. And I'm sure at some point I'll want to binge all the Bat books that I've missed since, you know, since Rebirth, right? And Bat Lapsed might just be the way that we get that done. But uh, we'll put a pin in that. Because <laughs> uh, who knows if it'll happen. It's just uh, in the preliminary stages right now. I'd have to figure out all sorts of artwork and all sorts of stuff for that. So it's there. It's just not here yet. But uh, that'll do it for the mailbag here. If anybody out there would like to get a hold of me, you could do so a couple different ways. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can shoot me an email at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Or you can leave a comment on chrisoninfiniteearths.com, where you can also find blog posts and show notes. We're very, very close to five years of daily posts over at Chris's on Infinite Earth. So I'm not sure if I'm going to do anything special for that, but uh, hey, it's there. Uh, you can also check out xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com And you can come to our little Facebook group and talk about all the stuff, any stuff, everything It's 90s X-Men on Facebook You can also check out the Chris and Reggie audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com And I think that's where we'll leave it for today I want to thank you all so, so much for hanging out with me today And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you all again real soon See ya Oh